Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mike Todorovic. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. Matt? Good day. Good day. Good day, mate. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, what's new? Uh, not a lot. Um, no, nothing. Fighting fires? You were I fighting d- fires? I did that on already. Sunday. Uh, I'm not sure I should say this, but um, the it was a hazard reduction burn. Yep. Which uh, is preparing for the fire season. So we're currently in winter in Australia. Which is a big thing in Australia, fire, yeah. fire season, summer. Yep. And um, it got a bit out of control. So it probably went from a hazard reduction into a wildfire. Into a hazard itself. Yes. So because of you? No. Right. It happened on the Saturday. I was there on the Sunday. Right. And so you were only supposed to be there for a couple of hours doing a little bit of burning off. Yeah. And it turned into saving 14 homes. hours. Of trying to stop houses being burnt down. That's right. Great. Well, uh, and it is in the mid- middle winter here, so yeah, well, it's Australia though too. That's true. And we live in Queensland, so it was a twenty-four degree Celsius day. Probably more. It was probably twenty-six, twenty-seven. Well, there you go. What would that be in Fahrenheit? Seventies? Uh, no way. Sixties? Um, Mid sixties? No, probably like ninety. Oh, so I have no idea 80? how Fahrenheit works. There you go. And that's a winter day. Yeah. There we go. Uh, well, I'm, I wasn't fighting fires. On the weekend, I was running uh, the open day. Well, For our university? It, but the whole university, Griffith University, uh, had their open day. And I was supposed to, but I got my dates wrong. Fires. Okay, well, you were fighting fires. You were saving lives. So are you, but just in a different form. That's right. I was, uh, I was saving uh, the educational status of many, many aspiring health professionals. So I was at the uni, I was in the labs, our, the labs we used to teach anatomy and physiology. And I was just there bringing all these new students in, showing them what we do, showing them the models, some of the experiments that we perform. It was exciting. The students liked it. I think I recruited probably thousands of new students for next year. Really? That's how, yeah, I'm pretty good at- Influential engaging. you were. That's very true. And convincing. A lot of impact. A lot of impact. All right, Matt. We're going to jump into what we're talking about today, uh, which is ischemic heart disease, mm. sometimes termed coronary artery disease or CAD. And uh, look, it's- It's got like many interchangeable names, which I'll get to a bit later. Okay. So but at I the think moment we'll call it ischemic heart disease? Yeah, both, both ischemic heart disease or CAD. Or coronary artery disease. So we might use them interchangeably, yep. uh, but basically the same thing. Yes. All right. Now, this is a, this is a topic that's very close to your heart. 
heart. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> it's supposed to be laughs. Oh, right. Okay. God, Jesus. All right. I was going to screw that up. Why is ischemic heart disease close to your heart? What's going on? Well, it's in my family history, I guess you'd say. Right. And so I'll give you – so my father, um, maybe 2018, so it was definitely pre-COVID. I'm pretty sure it was 2018. I remember. Um, is that correct? I don't remember if it was pre-COVID. <laughs> no, it's definitely it was pre-COVID. a while ago. Yeah, it was, it was definitely pre-COVID. Pre- anyway, he had a double bypass. What, what does that mean? Um, basically means that the, a surgeon has to go in and uh, put – two vessels that aren't normally in that location there to bypass a clot in the coronary vessels of the heart. So find two a, alternate routes to feed right, the heart. because there's a blockage. Blockage in his coronary arteries. Yes. Right, and uh, two blockages. Two blockages. Right, now I know your dad. He is a tall, lean, fit, healthy by all standards, you know, individual. Like I wouldn't think he ticks the boxes of being at risk for coronary artery disease? No, very low risk. So what, what's going on? Why did he need this? So basically what happened was um, he's very active, like you said, and he mm. does a lot of uh, bushwalking or hiking, I guess you'd say. And He's a well-known bush basher. <laughs> he was out, I think it was happen- happened over a couple of times that he reported, but essentially he was out bushwalking one day and noticed that didn't get any pain, but he just was out of breath. Right. And when he particularly going up hills, he just wasn't as, you know, his ability to, to power on was diminished. And that was odd for him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and in retrospect, because I did go bushwalking with him before this, and I do recall going up a steep hill once and he had to stop a few times. But here's a... Tough dude, right? So yeah, he's, yeah. For he, he would have not wanted to show no. that, he did, that he needed to stop, right? So I assume it was a lot worse than what he was making out to be as well. Possibly. Yeah. But there's a couple of times. And you're a terrible <laughs> son, so you probably said, come on, hurry up, you lazy old bastard. Get up the hill. <laughs> but I just remember, and I thought, oh, that's a bit out of character for dad because he is very fit. Mm. And I just thought, oh, he might be just getting a bit. Old or yeah. on. Yeah. And so I think this event, he was about 68 All right. years of age. Yeah. Okay. Maybe a bit younger, 67. Anyway, so he went to his – so it was a couple of times where he was just out of breath, I guess you'd say shortness of breath, with exertion. He went to the GP and the GP said, oh, look, there's no chest pain, but it sounds like it's an exertional, you know, heart thing. Right. So – Even though he didn't tick the other boxes. Yeah. Because I would think a lot of GPs would go, look, I wouldn't think it's anything to do with your heart looking at you. So, I mean, that's a good GP to be able yeah, to. Yeah, but I think this is also important to note here because um, the classic signs and symptoms of this condition we're talking about today doesn't always present as we think it should. Yes. And so some people, when they think of heart attacks or um, – ischemic heart disease, they should have the classic... Radiating chest pain. Clutch in your chest, falling down and collapsing, which it doesn't necessarily have that. It could even be silent, so you may not even know you're having it. You may have other symptoms, but they're not the classic, you know, kind of crushing chest pain. Yeah. 
So, so he, it's important to know. So he, so his GP said, "Look, go get it checked out." Gave him a referral to a cardiologist. Yeah, and in in the town where my parents live, there isn't a cardiologist available right. so all the time. So they city? he was referred to Newcastle, which is about two hours away. Mm-hmm. And again, the cardiologist said, "Look, there's no point me doing a stress test on you." And I can talk in a second what that means. I think. It's pretty classic um, angina. Right. So what we'll do is I'll just get you straight in. Since it's hard to, to see me essentially from where you live, I'll just schedule an angioplasty. Really? Yeah, so they'll just do a... I thought they always required a stress test. Well, he said, you've done the stress test. <laughs> that was walking up the hill. That was it. Like you're, it's indicative to me that you, when you do exertion... You become out of breath, and that's probably some form of ischemic heart disease. So, didn't even do a uh, echo. No, not that I can recall. Not that I reckon, wow. recall. Dad may have not told me everything, but <laughs> I don't. I don't recall him telling me this. Okay, because it was all, it, this was all very quite sudden, and so it was either the same visit or very close to it. He then did an angiogram. Did I say angioplasty or angiogram? You said angioplasty. Sorry, angiogram. Okay. So, yeah, sorry. Because I was thinking no, chucking him straight into surgery is... Sorry, angiog- angiogram. So, okay, so explain that. So basically they put a cannula in one of your arteries, yep. arm or leg. They go up right where the coronaries begin, the aorta, and then they shoot contrast dye into it whilst x-raying your heart. Yep. And they can see if there's any blockages. Sure. Or narrowings. Right. And so they did that. So it's another test. Another test. Great. So it's another test you can perform before you start to open people yes. up. All right. I so mean, it's an invasive test. Relatively invasive. Yeah. So, that, so they did that and immediately they said, oh, this is getting, this is quite bad. We all have to do a bypass straight off the bat. So they saw that of one or more coronary arteries, <clears throat> excuse yep. me, the, these are the arteries that feed the heart muscle itself that if they are blocked or the term we use is occluded, which we'll be using from here on out, if they're blocked, <laughs> occluded, it means that tissue doesn't get oxygen or nutrients. Yes, yes. And that tissue can ultimately die. Yep. So they saw that and they go, let's – so they can't just open it oh, up. They, could, they can do that, but they right. couldn't for him because they said – or the cardiologist said it, it's in a very awkward location of where the occlusion is, yep. maybe on certain vessel bends – so where the, it's kind of bending around and it's not stentable. Right. So that's the stent. That's like the umbrella that can be used Popped to open hold to, the walls open, right. scaffolding. So they said it's either too calcified or it's kind of in a, a bad position that we can't put a stent in. So we'll have to put a bypass. So what do you mean by calcified? Well, that would be a longer... So at some point today, we'll talk about the steps of atherosclerosis, which is the plaque formation in the blood vessels. Yeah. But the calcification is more an advanced form of, I guess you'd say, chronic inflammation, where the blood vessel gets infiltrated with calcium. And that's kind of a form of uh, chronic inf- inflammation. So is that more of a genetic-based No, I don't think cause? so. But, but I think in his case, and then you'll find out mine that that may be the genetic risk that you are more predisposed to having this form of atherosclerosis. So regardless of 
the additional risk factors you'd have in your lifestyle, you're still predisposed to getting a type of atherosclerosis which you really can't avoid. So he had to go into surgery, what, the would have been the next day, a few days later? Not long. Okay. So then we were told, family were told, that you'll need a double bypass. And, and so this was all very acute. What vessels did they use? One from the arm, and I think they used then, there's a vessel, internal mammillary, I think, uh, and that's kind of at the back of the sternum, and they just kind of looped that in. But then they bring, I think they brought, they stripped a, a vein from his arm and did that. And now, so that was obviously successful because your dad's pretty good now. Yeah, so, the, still- so the cardiologist actually said, your type of genetic risk, we will see the patients in their early 40s. Oh. But the fact that you had such a low risk profile. so Like a healthy lifestyle. Didn't smoke, not, not obese, you know, as you said, thin, on top of his blood pressure, doesn't have diabetes, doesn't have any cholesterol not issue. Not a drinker. Drinks very minimal. So all these... Uh, lifestyle risks so he doesn't have. He extended his lifespan, yeah, but also the, the, he also delayed the pathophysiology of, or the, the pathogenesis of that disease long enough so that they saw it two decades later than they normally would. That's right. Right. That's right. But not for you because you're a very unhealthy And then to, just to finish off, person. and this kind of illustrates <laughs> dad as a, you know, like you said, a, a what did you say? Not a battler, but a... Oh, so it is a, more of a stoic. Yeah, there we go. That's, that, that sums up dad very well. Yeah, he's stoic. very much a stoic. He's very much, he's, he's mindful, but he doesn't burden others with his emotion. Very much like Matthew. <laughs> uh, very true, very true. But he, because he's had a physical job all his life, he you know would get injuries and then just shut up about deal it. with it. I mean, even once he had- Lost his leg and well, never told the family. To <laughs> he, he's a diesel mechanic, but he had he was on- working on a tractor, and the tractor rolled onto his leg. Oh, so it was close. <laughs> Crushed it, he wow. pushed it off, and then drove to hospital. Oh, God. And Gee. so it indicates how dad is. But yeah. after the bypass surgery, which is essentially they'll cut open your sternum and open your chest and then do all the, the plumbing, I think he was out of hospital in like four days. Well, they try and get them up yeah. and moving immediately now, so right? I think he was out of out of the coronary unit in about 24 hours and then... Wow. Because they used to keep people still yeah. for a long time and then they realised that the best evidence is to get them moving, get them up and going. I think that's with a lot of things now. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, it makes total sense. So now what's happening with you though? So, so then the, the cardiologist said, look, because it's a genetic underpinning of your atherosclerosis it's likely that your children will have it so how did he know it was genetic simply because he didn't tick the other risk factors or they did a test didn't do the test but i think it's just the type of atherosclerosis that he had yeah i guess he could tell from looking at it yeah through the angiogram but also the lack of risk factors too. i would assume so what test did they do for you and your sister yeah, my sister hasn't had it yet because oh. she is considered basically if you are as a female still premenopause, you're at a low risk because estrogen is protective. Right. So as soon as females hit menopause, then their risks go up dramatically and they catch up to men pretty quickly. So what test did you have to do? 
So I had to do, I think this was the first thing I had to do was a calcium score CT, which is basically a CT scan of my heart with contrast. And then they would do a, like a, a rating score yeah. on percentiles to see of the plaque that's currently in your vessel, how, much how kind of advanced it is. And so they would do that for anybody who they suspect as having atherosclerosis? Who's at risk, yes. Who's at risk. So this is now a fairly, uh, it's not modern anymore, but it's a newish form of uh, non-invasive test. I mean, it's still got a bit invasive because it's a lot of radiation, but. What was, yeah, so CT, yeah, a lot of radiation, but what was your score? I was in like the 97 percentile. Oh, congratulations. Oh, no, that's bad. That's That's bad. bad. Okay. So for my my age. Usually when someone's in the 97th percentile, you have to throw a party for them, but not in this case. Not in this case. This is a bad case. In this case, you throw statins at them. Basically, that's (laughs) correct. All right. So 97th percentile. So what does that mean? Does that just mean that you've got a relatively occluded vessel or you're in the 97th percentile to being at risk for something? So what was it that they, they saw what that told them that? I think it's – I haven't been given a, a perfect answer in what this is actually measuring. Right. It's not occlusion, yeah. but I think it's the form of calcification within collectively in the vasculature of my heart. So the, so the remodelling that has occurred thus far, mm. it's sort of an algorithm. So for my age sex, I'm in the – I guess you would say bottom 3% of, or the highest 3% of risk. Right. So that then means you need to do what? What was the information at the, on the back end of that? So that was all. you don't drink, no. you don't smoke, you're a vegetarian, you eat extremely well, you exercise, you are ugly, but. And a redhead. And a, you're going to bring redhead. that in. So there's you? those two things that are held against you, but. I mean, I assume the cardiologist is like a no, at this point, keep doing what you're doing. At this point, it wasn't a cardiologist; it was a GP. All right, but then the GP, after that result, said refer you to a cardiologist, which then I've been seen for the last three years, I guess. And you go see every six months, three to six months. Yeah, it was every six months. So initially, what they did was functional assessments. So, so that would be a stress test. Yeah, so ejection fraction or more ECG? It was actually both. So they did ECG and then an echo. So they would do it. So the ECG is measuring the electrical activity of the heart to see if there's any changes to the way your heart conducts because that's an indication of mechanical change or potential mechanical change of your heart working as a pump. But then you can do an echo which can directly measure your heart's ability to work as a pump. So whether... The appropriate amount of blood like is entering, really. entering or leaving, if there's any regurgitation, if there's any uh, size changes, That's if right. there's any remodeling of the actual muscle of the heart. So they did those two tests and did yeah, they so, find anything? So resting and then after the 10 minutes of exercise on the treadmill. Yeah. And then... How'd you go with that? Fine. I mean, it was, it's not the most uh, enjoyable experience because they kind of want you to hold on to the handles yeah. whilst... Not trying to run yeah. whilst going uphill. So it's just This awkward. is what my wife does. My wife does this for a living, right? So she's a, a cardiac technician. And so she gets every day people in to do these stress tests. And a lot of them are older. Yeah. And a lot of them, if they have a heart condition, 
have never done exercise. Yeah. So she said it's, you know, it can be quite scary when you have somebody in, they're 80 and you put them on a treadmill and you push them to exertion and they've probably never exerted themselves before in their life. Or for a long time. Or for a very long mm. time. She goes, it gets scary. She said sometimes within 30 seconds, people are like, you need to stop. So, you know, and she said it can be quite worrying, especially when you start seeing these arrhythmias occurring. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so you did that. Uh, so I think they try to push you up to about 80% um, heart rate max. Yeah. And so for me, I, I just hit that and they just pull you off the treadmill. But no arrhythmias? No. So conduction's cool. What about echo? Echo's good. Great. So it's just the fact that you are at risk yes, genetically. So what does that mean on the back end? The cardiologist says, what do you need to do? Well, at the moment, well, pretty much straight away, they, as you said, put me on a statin. So that's a, a cholesterol-lowering drug. So just reducing your risk of depositing mm. uh, cholesterol into the walls of your blood vessels. That's right. Okay. And initially it was every six months, but now I think it's gone back to once every one, one year or maybe even two years now. Because you're at such a reduced... Yeah, the cardiologist is not really concerned now because they've done a whole lot of functional assessments. They've done... You'd probably be at a more reduced risk than me now considering you're on statins so early in your life. (laughs) You know, I'm probably at a greater risk than you are. The fact that you Possibly, possibly. I don't don't know the long-term evidence of statins. I also live a less healthier diet and exist... You exercise a lot though. So, all right. Now, this is 20 minutes of preamble talking about you, as always, as we always do. Never focus on me. It's just you and your dad. Anyway, should we start to actually jump into what people are after? Yes, definitely. And what they're after is obviously the information. And the information is going to include what? What are we going to cover today? All right. So, what I thought we could discuss is firstly, when we're referring to ischemic heart disease, see, or coronary artery. Art- Artery disease. Yep. See how prevalent it is in our society. Australia or globally? We can do both. All right. Um, a bit of medical history, and this is where we've had a, a special uh, researcher do some work for us, which yep. we'll talk to in a second. Then we'll define essentially what it is, what the cause of it is, the risk factors associated with it, brief pathophysiology, and then... Within the definition, we'll explain that this is an umbrella term that is actually the subtypes that fit underneath it. Yep. And just we'll discuss how they are slightly different to each other. And with the clinical presentation, um, we'll talk the mechanics for why you would see those typical symptoms. So yeah. what's the mechanisms behind each one of these classic sure. presentation symptoms? Yep. And then complications? The complication, so this would be more in reference to a heart attack. If you right. were to survive, what would be the likely ramifications that it would potentially lead to? So not an MI or a myocardial infarction or a heart attack will be one of the primary outcomes of ischemic heart disease, one of the primary yeah. negative outcomes, obviously, mm. of ischemic heart disease. And therefore that will also lead to other potential downstream issues, right. which we can focus on. That's right. Uh, anything else? Then just quickly how the this is kind of diagnosed. Yeah. We've already kind of alluded to it with my dad, but we'll just briefly expand on that and then treatments. treatments. All right. So to begin, we do need to flag the fact that we uh, did have a special researcher helping us with this. Uh, so, uh, we had Ben, uh, 
Zaxon. Now, Ben Zaxon is a high school student in uh, Connecticut in the US uh, and he sent, just sent us an email and said, hey guys, love what you do. I'm very interested in biology, doing a couple of college courses on physiology. Is there any chance I can help you with some of the work that you're doing? And so Ben is basically a virtual research assistant for us. And he helped us do a little bit of the background research for the ischemic heart disease topic today. So we do just want to thank Ben and thank him for his help. And, you know, if anyone out there is interested in doing a virtual internship or research assistant role with us, feel free to pop us an email and have a chat and we will uh, see what there is that can be done. So without further ado, nearly 30 minutes into the podcast, which is typical Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike fashion, we're going to start talking about ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease. And we're going to start with what a bit of a background or history. Well, let's do the prevalence first. So in terms of... So how common this is. Yeah. All right. So there are two kind of subgroups to ischemic heart disease. Yep. There is something called angina or angina. Do you say angina? No, I say angina. Does anyone say angina? Again, I think it's an... The Americans pronounce it like that. Angina. But... Oh, yeah. I could be wrong. See, once I put the accent on, it makes it angina. 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 I don't know. So well, <laughs> here, in, here in Australia, angina. So we're going to talk about angina. I like it. So there's two kind of subcategories of uh, ischemic heart disease or coronary art- artery disease. Yep. There are the anginas or anginas. Just say angina. Okay. And then there's the infarctions, the myocardial infarctions. Okay. Okay. So when we re- refer to ang- angina, now you maybe Wait, so you can say angina. No, I like... I prefer angina. I've just never heard you say angina. <laughs> so in terms of the whole <laughs> the global population, right? as of 2010, this is the stat that I could find. That's quite a while ago. About, yeah, it is a bit old. Um, it'd be interesting to see the effect of COVID now on heart disease because it seems it's a vascular like it's, disease. it's now dramatically increasing this. Right. That's a good point. But anyway, about 1.6% of the, the whole population has angina at any one time. Wow. Now, in the American American context, that's about 10.2 million individuals that have angina and about half a million cases per year, new cases per year, of, so individuals being diagnosed with angina every year. Okay. Now, in Australia, this is a more recent stat, 2020-21, so this is kind of within COVID. Yeah. About 2.9% of our population will be living with uh, ischemic heart disease. Okay, so that's not insignificant. That's based on reported data. So with the the, the latest um, survey, what what do we call that? Census. Yep. Yeah, that would be reported data. So about two point nine percent of the population. So we're higher than the global average. Right. Okay. But most Western countries would be, I assume. Or yes. That's yes. Okay. And that's going to be interesting because it's been traditionally thought as a affluent disease. I guess you'd say. So, because of environmental lifestyle, yeah, which tends to be overindulgence in uh, when it comes to diet, correct, but also uh, sedentary lifestyle, possibly yes. So more sitting, more eating mm. tends to correlate with increased risk of ischemic right. heart disease. That's right. All right. So about two nine percent of Australians have uh, ischemic heart disease, but once you get over the age of seventy, it goes up to about one in nine individuals. So I think it's three percent. 
2.9%. Oh, 2.9. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, yep. And so then as you go up to 70 years old, what? It's about 11%. Right. So it correlates with age two. That's right. Definitely. So diet, sedentary lifestyle, and age. Yep. Okay. Correlates with those factors. That's right. All right. Now, in terms of a an acute event, so this would be we'll we'll get to these categories again, but this would be probably more the more severe end of those categories in ischemic heart disease. So this would be heart attack or something called unstable angina. People would about 50, 60,000 Australians would be having these per year. And about, in terms of heart attacks, about 155 events per day. Right. And of these, about 12% are fatal. So, you know, forgive me, Matt, but what is ischemic heart disease and coronary artery disease? So you're saying, you know, it's common. People are experiencing it. People are experiencing the effects of it in a multitude of ways, whether that be angina or myocardial infarction. But what is it? So let's just first do the first one, which is ischemic heart disease. What does ischemia mean? Okay, ischemia just means a reduction in blood to a a tissue, usually a, a region of the body, a tissue area. So right. if, it's, if we're referring to the heart, it would just mean there's a reduction in blood flow to the heart muscle. And that's important because the blood has oxygen and nutrients. Correct. So then off the back of that, you impute that means that that tissue, so in ischemic heart disease, no oxygen and nutrients can get into the heart muscle. It doesn't get fed. It doesn't work. It's no longer a pump. Is that right? Not... There's not no, but a reduction in. If you're talking that there's no blood, right. that's now changing a term from inf- inf- ischemia to an infarction. So ischemia is just an alteration reduction. or reduction in blood flow, but it may not be so significant that it results in cell death. Correct. But if it is so much so that it results in cell death, that's now called an infarct. Correct. Right. right, so ischemia and infarct, reduction in blood flow and a resultant cell death from reduction in blood flow. Yep, and so that's the, dis- the big distinction here because ischemic heart disease is the umbrella that would enca- encapsulate both the anginas and the, the myocardial infarctions, which now I'll just call the MIs. Yep. Is that all right? Yep, but before we jump into that, just very quickly, the other word or descriptor that's used is coronary artery disease. And so the coronary arteries are the blood vessels that specifically feed the heart muscle. And so the disease aspect then, I assume, refers to alterations in those coronaries Correct. that lead to ischemia. Yep. Hence so since, why they're interchangeable. So since you brought this up, yep. I'm going to give you all the interchangeable terms that are used all for right. this condition. All right. Every, go through every one. Okay. This is what I could find. All right. Coronary artery disease, we yep. spoke about, or CAD. Coronary heart disease, or CHD. Okay. Okay. That's not very good because sometimes the CHD also means congestive heart disease. I was just going to so say that. So it's not great. Yep. Atherosclerotic heart disease. Okay. But that's very specific and doesn't encompass everything. But we'll get Coronary to Coronary vascular disease. All right. Ischemic cardiovascular disease. Okay. Ischemia, ischemic cardiomyopathy. All right. Ischemic heart syndrome. Yep. Myocardial ischemia. Yep. Cardiac ischemia. And then angina pector- pectoris. See, I think the thing here that I'm, they do sound synonymous and interchangeable, but some are more descriptive than others. Some will describe only 
a couple of categories of yeah. ischemic heart disease. Some will only describe the outcomes of ischemic heart disease. So I think ischemic heart disease is the better term. And those others, like the myopathies, that's now specifically referring to the musculature of the heart, right? So, and then some of those, I think there was one that was just something like ischemic vascular disease or something, which could be peripheral. Yeah, that's right? true. That's so true. it could be systemic, peripheral, maybe not heart specifically, but yeah, vascular, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right, so there are a number of different terms. So let's just say ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease, reduction in blood flow. So, yeah. this, is, so this is where you have the big split. You have the anginas yes. yep. and the MIs. And the difference is what we were defining before where Correct. ischemia versus infarct. That's right. So in the ischemic events where there's a reduction in blood flow. They're all the anginas. Angina. And then the blood flow that's reduced so significantly that the tissue dies, that's the infarct. That's a myocardial that's infarction. Right. And so by definition, now you're having death of tissue. So which, you could theoretically. Which generally means myocardium, so muscle heart cells have now died. Not all of them, but some. And that's what the heart basically is. It's just thick muscular tissue that contracts to work as a pump to move blood in and out. Correct. Right? Correct. All right, so... In, in, by by using that split, right, my thought would be it's more of a uh, flow-on effect in which ischemia must occur before infarct. So my thoughts would be that angina would, by definition, have to precede MI. Is that correct? Well, I couldn't give you a, a definite answer. Okay, let me, let me change the phrasing of that because I'm, it's a loaded question because I know the answer. <laughs> ischemia will precede infarct if the infarct is caused due to ischemia that's lasting too long. So yeah. you could argue that you can have a blood vessel, a coronary artery that is ischemic or the, there's a reduction in blood flow and it can be remedied or reversed and it doesn't lead to cell death or the infarct. But you can have that ischemia that lasts too long and it does result in cell death. So you can have... Uh, ischemia that leads to cell death ultimately, but you could can also have ischemia that's reversible. But I think the difference comes in with the definition of what angina actually is, because angina isn't by definition necessarily ischemia. Angina pectoralis, by definition, is simply chest pain or chest discomfort. Is it like a clinical symptom? Yeah, that's right. It it doesn't actually say ischemia. It, it doesn't. Yes. It you sort of impute ischemia. But it doesn't necessarily mean ischemia. Yeah. It just means chest pain or chest discomfort or chest strangulation or something like that. Correct. Right? And I believe you've got a quote I do. On, on the first use of this term clinically at was least. Was this the first use of it? Of it clinically. I mean, the term was already in use or had been used to mean like pain of strangling effect. But then we, I think angina with pector, pectoris meaning... The strangling pain. Is it pectoris or pectoralis? Pectoris. Pectoris, okay. Then I'm sorry. Associated with chest. Before. Yep. All right. So this is by William Heberden, Heberden from 1802. Where was he from? Britain. Okay, so I'll do a British accent. 
But there is a disorder of the breast marked with strong and peculiar symptoms, considerable for the kind of danger belonging to it, and not extremely rare, which deserves to be mentioned more at length. The seat of it, and sense of strangling and anxiety with which it is attended, may make it not improperly be called angina pectoris. Those who are afflicted with it are seized while they are walking, more especially if it be uphill and soon after eating, with a painful and most disagreeable sensation in the breast, which seems as if it would extinguish life if it were to increase or to continue. But the moment they stand still, all this uneasiness vanishes. It wasn't very British. But it was anyway. a combination of like, it was a bit of Dracula in there. But there is a disorder <laughs> of the breast. So William Herberden. So this is 1802. Yeah. And I think this describes angina. Stable angina. Stable. Okay. Now we're introducing more categories of angina. Mm. So are we now going to focus in on, on in on an <laughs> are we going to focus in on angina for a little bit now? Soon, soon. So what are we doing? Well, I still have to read out another oh. interesting fact that Ben found. Okay. So the first documented evidence of probably a heart attack was uh, uncovered by a group of researchers that found a princess in ancient Egypt who they died. Princesses then? I don't know. Or were they just pharaohs? Or was it just part of the royal lineage? Well, let's call it that. All right. Okay, so she lived between 1580 and 1550 BC. All right. So okay. 2,500 years ago. Yep. So no more, 3,500 years ago. Yep. 35, yep. And so she died fairly early for, in her 40s. Yeah, 3,500 years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in her 40s. In her 40s she died. Okay. Yeah. Well, that might be a ripe old age for ancient Egypt. Could be. And, again, this goes back to what we're talking about, that, you know, typically ischemic heart disease was thought to be a more of a Western, you know... Diet-induced, diet, yeah, eating bad foods, not doing much exercise, but... But these researchers had a look at a whole lot of mummies from ancient Egypt. So yeah. they... Wait, wait, wait. So how did they know that this person had a heart attack? They did uh, CT scans on them and they did scans of their heart and they looked at the blood vessels and they Cuz they never they didn't take the heart out, did they? That's the thing. With the mummies they took everything else but the heart out. Is that right? Or they did they take the heart out and uh, preserve that separately in a, like a, a jar or something or a pot next to it? I could be wrong, but I'm quite confident that they leave the heart in. Okay. As one of the few cuz I think they thought the heart played the role of the brain. Yeah, or I could have made yeah. that up entirely. But I think it, I think it was something to do with the spirit. They thought that's the spirit of the person in the heart. Anyway, you keep you keep going. So from the mummies, I think they did fifty odd. They did CT scans on fifty odd mummies, and they yep. found that at least half of them had evidence of coronary artery disease. Really? So yeah. atherosclerotic plaques. That's right. Fifty percent. Fifty percent of them. So you're saying it's not just a, a Western recent current because there, there has been an argument that I've heard, you know, things like, oh, cancers are a recent disease, heart disease is a recent disease, but this isn't the case. This we, never, is, we never died of these things in ancient times exactly. because we were much healthier. But, but we did. But I, I think I sent something to you the other day on what the common diseases were in London 
in like <laughs> yeah, the 1800s did. or something, yeah, right? And there yeah. were things that we just wouldn't even be afflicted with now, right? Yes. A lot of them were just infectious disease or disease of incidence or accident uh, that would, for us today, would just be fixed. Yeah, no problem was, in ED. Some of them were amusing in some ways, like um, deaths from being bitten by a rabid dog. Yeah. Well, luckily we don't have rabies in Australia, um, but I'm sure people still die of rabies even in, some in the US. Of the world, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, uh, so it's not a recent disease, and they saw that there were atherosclerotic plaques, or at least maybe uh, modifications or, or changes within the vessels that Correct. could indicate Correct. that there was possibly heart disease yep. occurring uh, 3,500 years ago. And so should we start talking about angina? Before that, let's just quickly introduce the idea of what the coronaries do. Because if we understand what they do, then we can um, talk to what happens when they're not doing what they should do. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great idea. Well, this is where I jump in. So the word, okay. Okay, no, so you do it. So I'll say this is where I jump in and then you just. Oh, I'll just quickly just introduce what the term means. Coronary yep. means crown, like a coronation. Right. That's the process of crowning someone, right? That's right. Like the king recently, or king of England, or Britain. England? Britain. Britain. Recently. You need to be careful here, Matt. Britain. Recently got coronated. Yeah. Um, and that was the process of crowning them. Yes. So the, cor- the coronaries, uh, I guess, were named because they look like they're a, a group of blood vessels that go around the heart. The base of so the heart, coronate, which is the top. Which is coronate. That's right, the base of the... And corona is the crown, uh, is referring to the sun, but it's also that the corona is that sort of glow you get around the sun, right? Oh, okay. So that's the corona. Yep. Um, all right, so with these coronary arteries, I mean, they're super interesting arteries in in many ways. And I think the most interesting uh, piece of information to understand about the coronaries is that I think early on students don't understand the fact that while the heart may be a pump for blood, that the heart doesn't just take the blood that it's pumping in the ventricles and just absorb it through diffusion mm. or osmosis to get its own oxygen and nutrients. It, like every other tissue in the body, needs its own dedicated blood supply, right? So this is the coronary arteries. And as we know, all of the oxygenated uh, vessels come off the aorta, right? The aorta will have oxygen and nutrient-rich blood that it delivers to all the tissues of the body. The coronaries are no different. They also come off the aorta, but they come off- Technically the first branch. Yeah, yeah, straight away. Interestingly, they come off the aorta at a very interesting- place at the aorta. So as the aorta leaves the left ventricle and ascends up, you know, like the like the trunk of a tree moving up. And that's what the aorta means to hang. To hang. So it yep. looks like the heart's hanging from the aorta. So we've that's right. So we've got the trunk of the aorta as it leaves um, the, the left ventricle. But because it's going up and you know it's hanging, it means that when the left ventricle relaxes, blood's gonna want to fall back down the aorta into the left ventricle. So all of these large vessels that leave the ventricles, so the aorta but also the pulmonary arteries, they have valves in them that are called semilunar valves that just catch that blood. They're like nets that catch the blood that's falling back into the heart when the heart's relaxing, also known as... Diastole. That's right, or diastole. Do you say diastole or diastole? Diastole. Okay. Does it matter? No. Yeah, well, good. So we'll say diastole. 
<laughs> so as that blood's falling down, it gets captured by the aortic semilunar valve. Now, here's the thing, or valves. As it gets captured just above the valve, on I- or valves, on either side of the aorta are two little exit points, and these little exit points are the left and right coronary arteries. And as they exit the aorta, so think about this, the uh, left ventricle contracts, pumps the blood up into the aorta to feed the tissues of the body. Then the left ventricle relaxes and the blood falls back down, wanting to go back into the left ventricle, but it can't because the aortic semilunar valves close. Pop open. But as they close, the blood then gets to drain into the left and right coronary arteries to feed the heart muscle itself. So unlike other tissues of the heart, the heart actually gets fed when it relaxes, not when it contracts. Yeah. That's cool. It is. Right? I, but I wonder here, and this is, I haven't looked into this, I probably should have, but I wonder also, so another point to add here is when you talk about the heart, if you were looking at the layers of the heart, you have the layer that's closest to the blood within the chambers. Endocardium. Endocardium. And then you have the thickest layer, which is the myocardium. Yep which is all just muscle to do the pumping. And then you have the outer wrapping of the heart. Epicardium. Epicardium. Which one aspect of it is also known as the pericardium. Yep. The visceral pericardium, that's right. So you would think in most tissue, the blood vessel should be probably in the middle of the tissue, right? Right. But in terms of the heart, it's actually on the outer surface. So if you were to pull the heart out of a person or just look at their heart whilst in situ... You actually can see these vessels generally, and sometimes they are kind of covered in fat, mm. but generally you'll see them on the outside of the heart itself. That's important clinically, right? So they are epicardial vessels. They are epicardial ves- ves- uh, vessels. And the importance of the, the that is if that – so, oh, okay, let's think about it. Actually, let's talk about the vessels and then let's think about how it feeds the tissue and then we can talk about – the what that means, the fact that they're epicardial vessels. So as the left and right leave the aorta, the left will feed the left-hand side of the heart, the right will feed the right-hand side of the heart. There are multiple branches that each of the left and right coronary arteries have. So some of the most important ones would be that when the left exits the aorta, that it has two main branches. So one that basically just goes straight down the middle of the heart to the apex, to the point. goes down an area that's probably termed the interventricular septum, Mm -hmm. which is the septum that unsurprisingly separates the ventricles, hence the name. But then there's another artery, which is split off from the left coronary, that wraps around the heart. Circumnavigates. It circumnavigates, that's right. And hence it's called the... Circumflex. Circumflex artery. So you've got the left circumflex artery and then you've got the one that goes all the way down the front, which is called the left anterior descending artery. So that's sometimes shortened to be the lad. The lad yes. Or more correct anatomically would be called the anterior interventricular artery. But that's right. Mostly it will be called the lad, maybe inappropriately sometimes called the widow maker. Yes, that's right. Because that's the one that usually gets blocked in a heart attack and that leads to death. Yeah. Yep. There's also another branch which comes off, you could argue, either 
you know, the main aspect of the left coronary or the circumflex, which is called the marginal. Mm. And it simply just goes down the left margin of the heart. So if you're just looking at the heart from front on, you're going to have the left and right boundaries of, you know, the side of the heart. It just goes down that left border, side of, border of the heart. So they're the three main, I would say, on the left, right? Mm. Then you look at the right, it's similar in the sense that there's branches that come off. And so from the right coronary, you're going to have a branch which is going to be the uh, right marginal. So it goes down the right margin of the heart. But the right coronary also moves behind the heart as well and then has another branch which is the opposing version of the lad. It's so probably the end point rather than a branch. It probably This is just where it ends. Yeah, you're probably right. So the right basically as it curves around the back of the heart begins to descend around the back hence it's called the posterior descending artery. And for some people, that pos- that posterior descending as it goes towards the apex can actually meet up with the anterior descending or the lad who's going down the front and they can meet at around about the apex or a little bit behind and connect together called an anastomosis, which is one of my favorite terms in anatomy, which is actually something that would be prop- you know, theoretically beneficial because it leads to redundancies of blood flow. Mm. So if the lad may be blocked, which we'll be talking about, maybe there's an opportunity for the posterior descending to feed at least some parts that the lad would be feeding, at least around the apex of the heart. Um, any other aspects there? Of well, the well, not in terms of the arrangement of the vessel, but the, the point I was going to make is, as you said, when the heart is in systole yep. and the blood is getting pushed out of the left ventricle into the aorta, and the force is such at a high speed, you know, like you're talking 120 millimetres of mercury, Yeah, that would be very hard to fill those two pipes in systole. But when the heart is relaxing or the ventricles are relaxing and it's kind of sucking back to shape, it would almost try to siphon the blood back into it. Yes. But these valves or the aortic valve pops open and then blood enters the coronaries. So, what do you mean the valves pop open? The valves would shut. Yeah, sorry. I mean, when I say pop open, I mean just let's say pop close. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you mean is that the valves close the blood like vessel. It almost is like a parachute opening. Yes, that's yeah, what you meant. That's it what I meant. Opens up like a parachute, closing the the aorta, so yeah. it doesn't regurgitate back into the left ventricle, but remains open to catch the blood to drain it through di- in diastole yeah. into the into the coronaries. So this is this was my thought, right? And I haven't investigated, and I should have. But as the vessels fill in diastole, yes, I just wonder coronaries, the coronaries. I wonder if they're just kind of filling to be uh, just filled with blood, but when it goes into its next, next systolic phase and the heart's being squeezed, if it's actually that squeezing... It would be. ...that I'm does sure. the perfusion. I'm sure. So it's kind of like one step behind. Yeah. I'm, I'm, does that make sense? I'm confident. I've always thought that and I haven't checked it either, but that was my assumption, was that the change in uh, pressures and forces due to the contraction and relaxation of the heart muscle would, like you said, I like the word siphon, in a way sort of lead to some maybe suctioning effect or pressure gradient changes that increase the perfusion rate of the coronaries. So I would agree with that. I think another important point to highlight here is the fact that you said that these coronary arteries are epicardial. So, you know, they, they sit on the outside of the heart, meaning they feed those parts first and then they feed the endocardium last. Yes. Right? 
And the reason why that's important is because if you have a reduction in the blood flow in the coronaries, the part that's going to be most affected first would be the endocardium, the or inside. The, or the subendocardium, technically. Because sub- I, I think the endocardium, by definition, will get its nutrients through diffusion. Yes, but it's so it's minimal. Epithelia. It would just get to that. Yeah, you're right. But on the other side is the first that will become death. Yeah, but for all intents and purposes, we can say endocardium just to make it easier. Um, But yes, it's because obviously the oxygen and nutrients will need to diffuse to the endocardium or subendocardium. And if there's less, then it's going to be less available for diffusion. And so that's an important point because when we get, start talking about ischemia, the first parts of the tissue to become ischemic will be the endocardium or subendocardium. Right? Yes, that's that's important. That's yeah. very important, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to MIs. The first part to become uh, uh, to undergo infarct and cell death will be the endocardium, and then that can spread through, right? Yep. So uh, when 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 we look at blood vessels uh, and the coronaries, and we talk about issues in regards to like angina and MI. Are we talking about angina now? One final thing I'll put before <laughs> we move. the fourth time. <laughs> is just really quickly. Yeah. So we've spoken about their branches, how they're arranged, how they're filled in diastole versus systole. But finally, just an interesting point that I came across is how is the blood vessel diameter controlled? Okay. And so there's going to be effects from the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. So sympathetic nervous system in particular once it's activated, so this is in the fight and flight response, when you do want the heart to be working hard and blood pressure to be up and more breathing, etc., you want the coronaries to dilate so they can bring more blood to it. Sure. But there's also its own intrinsic control. So whatever the heart's doing from a workload point of view would locally um, signal to the blood vessels to tell it we need some more blood. Yes. Can you dilate for us? Yeah. So and there's so, local control and more systemic or peripheral control. And so one of the ways it would do this is if the heart is being working harder, it needs more ATP, therefore it needs more oxygen, right? And so that's a, a relationship yep. that is strongly connected. So ATP dilates coronaries? Not quite. Right. But as the ATP is being utilised, so as ATP is being pulled apart by the phosphates being pulled off it, their byproduct being ADP or AMP gets degraded into adenosine and adenosine then signals to the blood vessel through calcium to dilate, not contract. Which makes sense because it's saying we're low on energy because we're a byproduct of having used that energy. We need more. How do we get more? dilate the blood vessels, bring more oxygen. So that would then mean from that, and this is why I like physiology, is the fact that you can sort of take from fundamentals and then have some pretty good educated guesses. So using that logic, I could say, okay, then there's probably a number of other metabolic byproducts that would also vasodilate the coronaries. For example, maybe lactate and maybe hydrogen ions would also vasodilate the coronaries. And the reason why I would think that is because they're byproducts of uh, metabolism with less oxygen, Mm. right? And they do. They do vasodilate 
the coronaries because of that. So you can say ADP, adenosine, hydrogen ions, lactate, carbon dioxide. These are all local factors that can vasodilate the coronaries, right? But you can also have cells in that area which could be either stimulated directly by those chemicals or through changes or maybe there's been ischemic events where the cells might uh, think they're damaged and they release chemicals. And these chemicals could be things like nitric oxide or prostaglandins or bradykinins. And they can also vasodilate yeah, yeah. as well locally. Yes. And I, well, with the nitric oxide, that would be a, a gas that's released by the endo- endothelium. Yes. And that actually can be used b- by clinicians artificially to dilate them. In the form of nitroglycerin. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm not going to ask if we're going to angina now. now we what are go. we doing next? <laughs> Well, now it's time to go into the, the condition now. All right. So, so we've done what the physiology is. Yep. We've kind of introduced the terms. Yep. So we know what ischemic heart disease is. Now we can start to look at how it comes about. So the thing that I find tricky to, to uh, at least in, in the front end when I didn't fully understand ischemic heart disease is that ischemic heart disease t- is basically just saying there's a reduced blood flow. Right, going through the coronaries to the heart muscle. That is not always caused by atherosclerotic plaques. No. Now, what we've spoken about so far is pretty much just, it's just been that, right? We spoke about the case study with you and your dad, the fact that your dad has had occlusions due to atherosclerotic plaques, calcium buildup. You are at risk for that as well. But probably 50% of cases aren't necessarily atherosclerotic. And that, I mean, that's that's what the evidence also states, is that um, if you have a look at the evidence, 50% of angina patients don't have coronary obstruction. Okay. Right? And so there are other things happening to the coronaries or at the level of the coronaries that are leading to ischemia. Right. So let's then talk about angina because angina is simply telling you that the person is presenting with some degree of chest discomfort or chest pain, okay. which is in an indication of something happening to the coronaries. Right. Where do you want to go from there? Well, firstly, let's introduce, if, you're going to, if we're going to focus on angina, is that what you're suggesting? What do you think? Do you yeah. think it's the, the, where we should go to now? Yeah, we can, we can. Okay. Well, as you said... If well, we can't. <laughs> we don't have to. We, we've spoke that... Ischemic heart disease is just an umbrella term yeah. that's suggesting that the heart muscle is running out of blood. Yeah. Okay, and it's so it's almost like a spectrum. Mm. You could have some at one end that the ischemia is predictable, as in you can pretty much guess what is going to lead to the ischemia, and then as we go to the other end of the spectrum, it becomes very unpredictable, and these are generally now termed acute coronary syndromes. Okay. So that would be the MIs and the unstable angina. Okay, well, and we can talk about... Well, but both what, from the predict, predictable and unpredictable, that is the stable... Sorry, that is the unstable and MI. That's right. So unstable angina and the, the two classifications of MI, which would be a STEMI or ST elevation MI or a non-ST elevation MI, which we call a non-STEMI. They form in a cluster of acute coronary syndromes, which are very unstable. So where do they fit in the predictable to unpredictable? They're unpredictable. So the pain, the angina that is brought on 
comes about with a, in a very unpredictable nature that you can't be confident of what the, the things that uh, predispose or what's the other word? Um, the precipitate, yeah. to bring it on. So what about the predictable? So that would be the stable angina. All right, so okay. you're saying that we've got ischemic heart disease and when we look at it and we, and we talk about chest pain or chest discomfort – there is predictable and unpredictable, like it's this spectrum. Yep. And that if it's predictable, we sort of know what's causing it and probably can reverse it to some degree or at least in, in, in that, that moment, stage. Right? In that stage, that's right. It might still be progressive, but in that stage we could possibly reverse it. But we know what's causing it and that's what we call stable angina. Yeah, that's right. And, then on the and that would be the definition that you read. All right, gotcha. So, that, from, so the real – William. That's right. The real classic presentation of stable angina is the pain comes on with exertion. Yep. Generally, that's going to be a physical exertion, but it can also be emotional, like a stressful event, and it will be relieved by rest. Right. And then the unpredictable, you said, is unstable angina and myocardial infarction. Correct. All right. So... Where should we start at stable? We can do, yeah. And then move move down? Yep. So we've got uh, – so angina, first of all, is chest pain or chest discomfort lasting a certain period of time. Yep. Right? Again, it, it's it's tricky because it really depends on the situation. But if you if we're using stable angina as the, the base point, mm. then it would be really a short-term um, degree of chest pain that's brought on with exertion yep. that then dissipates with rest. Right. Now, the the crux of it, the baseline of it, is going to be an atherosclerotic lesion. Not always. Well, once you start to go to close to the unstable, that's where you're going to bring all uh, another form being the Prinz metal or um, vasogenic, maybe I think, I think it's called, where there are spasms associated with blood vessel. That then becomes an unpredictable form. It's not so much stable because it can come on with rest and doesn't go... So you, you're not exerting yourself and it will come on mm. and it doesn't necessarily go away with, say, the nitroglycerine. Yeah. But when we talk about stable, the classic stable, it would have a, an occlusion to the vessel that would reduce blood flow and it's only when the heart's working harder that then that reduction in blood flow isn't to a certain level that the heart is now running out of blood. Yeah. But when you go to the acute coronary syndromes, then they have a whole lot of other things that could be superimposed onto it. Yeah, because I I was reading a paper that came out, I think it was a year or two ago, that was basically stating 50% of angina patients don't have any coronary obstruction at all and that many have microvascular changes or uh, vasospastic angina. And so they they highlighted that there's these three different areas that you look at in regards to angina. So the systemic, so you've got this myocardial supply demand yep. ratio, which is off. Uh, and that could be due to a multitude yeah, of things, yeah, right? It could, it could simply be due to a problem with the blood pressure, heightened sympathetic activation, pulse rate. So those types of things could, could affect that. You could have cardiac based causes, so this could be heart failure, left ventricular hypertrophy, whatever that may, you know, those types of things. Or you could have coronary induced, right? Coronary specific. So this could be obstructive, like you were saying. Um, it could be uh, microvascular dysfunction. 
Um, it could be uh, artery spasm, mm. myocardial bridging, endothelial dysfunction, a range of things. But I think that what you were saying is is broadly the best way to look at it because it makes total sense in the, in the fact that in stable angina, you have some existing degree of occlusion. May or may not necessarily be atherosclerotic, but probably is, but you've got some degree of occlusion that's there Mm. and it is occluded, limiting the amount of blood getting through, but at rest that's enough to feed the heart muscle. But once you start doing exercise and exertion, then what we're saying just before that, the the supply-demand ratio is off. So it can't... Um, there's a mismatch. You know, the, the oxygen demand exceeds the supply. And therefore you're like, well, it was brought on by exertion because the heart's now pumping harder and as a muscle it just needs more oxygen because it's working as a muscle more, you know, more vigorously. Let's just tell that person to stop exerting. Mm. And when they do, it might relieve itself. So that's what you were saying about the stable sort of Correct. at rest that sort of resolves, at least the chest pain resolves, the that's angina right. resolves. Um, I mean, they've still got some form of issue yeah. in the, their vasculature or the, their coronary. Um, or maybe you give them nitroglycerin and it just relaxes the blood vessels to sort of open it up a little Correct. bit. And then that lets more in. And that is also predictable, as in gotcha. that, that will go away with this intervention. So both of those interventions for stable angina tend to resolve the angina. Yep. And when we and again, this is why we keep saying that angina is simply just chest pain or chest discomfort. It resolves the angina. It doesn't resolve the issue. Right, and, that's and right. The, right, and the Correct. issue is some degree of occlusion that's right. in, the, in the coronary, yep. right? And that could be microvascular, a microvascular issue. It could be an atherosclerotic plaque. You know, it could be endothelial dysfunction. It, it could be any of those particular things that might be leading to that. So then we go down to the unstable. Do you want to talk before we go there just the basis of how a plaque comes about? Yeah, good idea. Okay. Good idea. Because this is going to be also underpinning all the risk factors that are generally yeah. associated with this disease cluster. Yeah. No, I, I mean, pretty much idea. all the risk factors come about from atherosclerotic disease. Yeah. Because... Even if you think about if you if we go out of the heart and go to another area of the body, let's say if you look at peripheral artery disease, which is usually legs, yep. patients who have this, so this would be an occlusion in a vessel uh, in their legs, they would get their pain, their ischemic pain on exertion as well. So when they start walking, sure. they get their calf pain, which is called intermittent claudication pain. Yep. And again, that's brought on by exertion. But it's the same event. Yes, that's right. Right? Yep. So, And I think that's important because it's just a different muscle, but same event. Correct. Correct. One's peripheral as opposed to coronary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yep. yep. So I won't go into too much depth with it, but pretty much atherosclerosis. Well, we've done a whole podcast. Yeah, that's right. You could make the argument that it's a form of acute, well, probably chronic inflammation. Yeah, that's fair. Now, it's the, the inflammation is in the blood vessel, so that's yes. where the problem is. Okay, So essentially, you need something that initiates the injury to begin with, yep. and this is the first step of atherosclerosis, and all of us would have this in parts of our body. Sure, sure. So this is generally termed the fatty streak stage. And so just, just quickly to jump in, correct me. You've got so, – because if you think about the vessels as a hose and you've got the internal lining of it, that's epithelia. So it's endothelium. That's what we call epithelia within blood vessels. And the endothelia is arranged in a way that just tries to make it this frictionless, smooth environment because we know that any time you've got dispar- disparity or um, some sort of um, – anything protruding out from the blood vessel, platelets are very sticky. They'll stick to anything that's not smooth right? And platelets are floating through your bloodstream all the time. But just like with a hose, you can damage the inside of that tube a number of different ways. And one of the probably prominent ways is through continual high force being placed on the wall of the endothelium. Mm. And that can lead to damage. And like you said, over time, you know, it tends to be this overtime thing, but it's still damage. Mm. So, are you saying that the fatty streak happens once the endothelia is damaged? Generally, that'd have to be an an agent that leads to endothelial injury. That's right. Yeah, and the biggest one's probably hypertension. Yes, I would agree. I think that is true. That high blood pressure or high shear force yeah. on a blood vessel is an initiating factor for endothelial injury. And in the atherosclerosis podcast episode, which I will link in the description of this episode, uh, we talk about those shear forces and where the vessel is most likely to be damaged when we talk about hypertension. So we do go through this yeah. in a lot of detail. Usually speaking, where, the, where there's a vessel with the greatest turbulence, just like a like a, a river that has high flow, yeah, where you see rocks sticking out yeah. or things well, that forks, are blocking it, if it forks. that's where it changes... The still water into white water. Yeah. It's similar to blood vessels. Wherever you see white water, there's turbulence that can smash on the side of the wall. Bifurcations are usually bifurcations, those yeah. types of locations. All right. So we've got damage to the endothelium. Most now, many things can do that. So yeah. smoking is a huge thing that would so cause toxins in the blood. Toxins from the tobacco smoke yeah. would cause injury to the endothelium. So would byproducts of diabetes. Right. Certain fats can also be toxic to the, the vessel wall. Yep. Alcohol? And I don't know exactly how alcohol comes into the mix, but alcohol yep. is a risk factor. For nearly everything. But <laughs> that may not be – look, I'm probably wrong, but it could be more to the way that it changes your lipid profile in. Probably right. Than yeah, probably ethanol right. itself. Yeah. But it, who knows? I mean, there's, there's millions of things that could have sure. effects on, end, on the endothelium. So what happens is basically you've now got a disturbance to the endothelium and what can happen is the blood vessel says, got a problem here, 
what's going to happen is these LDLs, low-density lipoproteins, can start to go into the, the wall and kind of deposit just on the other side of the, the endothelium, so on the intermar, just on the deeper side of it. Connective tissue. And just start to kind of accumulate there. Right. And this then leads to the next phase where because we've got an injury, we bring in some white blood cells to try to clean up the problem. And some of the things that will, some of the blood, sorry, the blood cells that will come in, the white blood cells would be things like monocytes, neutrophils, lymphocytes that try to clean up the mess. But because of the nature of the fat, they try to phagocytose, so eat it, but they can't clear it overly well and they become oxidized. And these are, this is called foam cells. And so if you were to look at the blood vessel in, Histological or through a microscope, it would look foamy, like foam, like sea like foam. The sea foam, that's right. Yeah, and so these cells are shaving just becoming. Foam. There we go, like shaving foam. So they start to kind of build up in nature. Now this happens over decades. So now we're talking again. Most of us in society would have this process in our vessels somewhere, and this is kind of moving between a, a fatty streak to a more of a advanced plaque. A quick interruption. Are these happening in all types of blood vessels or only blood vessels of certain size and type? Good question. Uh, from the best of my knowledge, it will only happen in arteries, not in veins. Yep. And generally larger arteries, right? Yeah. Um, not, yeah, I think in theory, all the kind of muscular based arteries, I don't know, they will affect the aorta, yep. which are more elastic based, right? Once we get right down to the smaller end, maybe just because they don't have such a big pressure, they may not develop as... That was always my thought, the fact that it was generally the larger arteries because of the pressure gradients. But the classic locations would be you know, your carotids, your renals, your abdominal aorta, your coronaries, your cerebrals. Which um, are generally larger arteries, right? Yeah. So now we kind of go into a long term. So this is why age comes into the mix. Okay, just because, it, because it's long term. Uh, that's right, allowing this process to continue. And what starts to happen is the fat cells, so the foam cells start to become necrotic and you get this inner core that dies off and it starts to get filled with other things. Like So smooth muscle starts to migrate up into that and then we try to... Is that just because it's trying to remodel it? It's trying to fix it? And so fibroblasts or maybe there's other types of stem cells moving through to go, oh, let's just try and heal it up. That could be right. Any way possible. That could be right. But then the, the fibroblasts kind of come up to the top of the actual... Because now all this foam cells and all these um, lipids that are filling up the blood vessel in that location is starting to bulge... Into the lumen. Into the lumen. Yeah. And so you're wanting to um, support, you want to make it secure... And so the fibroblasts kind of lay a cap over the top of it. Right, this thin cap. And that makes it instead of a – it's still probably going to have endothelium on it, but it wants to reinforce it and make it safe. Yep. So it puts a fibrous cap over the top. All right, now stop. Because in stable angina, we've probably undergone this entire process up until this point, and now you've got an occluded to some degree vessel – So this vessel might be 20% occluded, 50% occluded, 90% occluded, but it's occluded and it's capped. 
And so you now know that you've got a vessel of a narrowed diameter. And so when you try to increase through, uh, you know, uh, the, the pumping motion of the heart through exercise, again, there's now a, a mismatch in the oxygen demand and oxygen supply. And again, if it remains capped off and unchanging more or less in that moment, then you've got stable angina, right? Correct. But if the next phase occurs, which is what? So, well, again, it's hard to say this because I don't think it necessarily just goes from stable to unstable to now MI. No, it doesn't. But You may have the first known case of your ischemic event maybe straight into an MI. Sure, sure. And it could just come about from any of the things that you mentioned earlier. It could just be there's been an embolism that's broken off and now it's just blocked a vessel. And but it's needed to talk about it like this. Yep. So, okay, so it's capped off, right? You now undergo some degree of exertion possibly okay. where you've increased the blood pressure inside of this artery. It's because of the pressure, you know, blood pressure is the force that the blood places on the walls of the vessels, it might damage that cap a little bit, right? Might knock that cap off. Right. And now you're just exposing all this underlying tissue that's there. <clears throat> it's like these flags that are now waving yeah. to the inside of the blood vessel. As the blood moves through, platelets are like, hello, what have we got here? Stick to them. Because it's like there's a damaged site here. Let's try and block it up. But now the blood now the platelets accumulate. Now, this might further occlude mm. this vessel, leading to f- further angina and further occlusion and, and, and ischemia, or maybe it pops off. And this is now a... Yeah, so now what you're talking about is we've now left the stable yep. and we're going to the acute coronary syndrome. The horses have left the stable, that's right. And so what we're looking at here is either the unstable angina yep. or now the MIs. Yes. And so I think you've presented the classic progression yep. of a stable plaque, which would be the primary cause, with now an additional thing on top. Yes. Literally. Yes. Um, which is a thrombus. So that thrombus, because if you think about all arteries where these atherosclerotic plaques are forming, they go from wider to more branched and narrow. Mm. So if you've created this clot or embolism, it's an embolism if it's producing the heart, right? Embolism is where it's gone from a thrombus and it's broken off. Yep. So anytime... But usually heart produced, isn't it? No, no. You, oh, could, okay. have, you could have a... Uh, a pulmonary embolism, yeah, which of comes course. off from a DVT in yeah. your leg. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's popped off and as it travels down the artery, it's going through more narrow spaces until blocked, yes. until it's just stuck. And that means anything distal or further away from that doesn't get fed. Correct. And so if this is happening in the coronary, then whatever's further away from that blockage, that tissue isn't just becoming ischemic now. It's not reversible. You can't just stop exercising and then that tissue gets fed because it's blocked regardless. So the supply to demand is even worse. Even at rest, you can't supply the oxygen to that tissue because it's fully blocked it. And so this will could then lead from ischemia to infarct. Yeah. And so, but let's first talk about that unstable angina. What is the difference between unstable angina and a myocardial infarction. Okay, so the big difference is 
if you're talking about unstable being the primary cause being atherosclerosis and now something additional to that yep. that's now pushing the ischemia in into an unpredictable fashion. Yeah. And so like you said, which I think is important, is there could be a whole host of reasons what leads to the um, reduction in blood flow. Yeah, it's not just which is not just atherosclerosis. Yes. And this could be like you said, it could be anything from your blood has be just become thicker than it normally is, so it's more viscous. Yeah. So you can't get it past that occlusion. Now it becomes unpredictable. Yeah. Or the vessels start spasm and that's now becoming unpredictable. And or, I think this is important because or or just the demand that the heart has now. Yeah. Which is not from something that you would think is typical. Like even if you all of a sudden developed anemia, the heart is now working hard at a baseline because you are having less oxygen in your blood because yeah. you've got iron deficiency anemia. So your heart is at rest beating harder now. Yes. But that's enough now to go into an angina state. Yes. So I think it's important to say that the stable angina, because we're just talking anginas at the moment, remember angina is just the chest pain. So the stable is, like you said, it's known. Predictable. Can, predictable, can be reversible in that moment. And the unstable is, oh, not sure what's happening here. Uh, it may lead to an infarct, right? But I would say clinically, the main difference between unstable angina and an MI is that, you know, the, the, the pathophysiology and symptomatology is the same. It's just that the biomarkers are different in regards to troponin. Yeah, so right? it just hasn't, so for an unstable angina, it just hasn't got to the degree where cells are dying. Exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that I've heard uh, medical professors say is that an MI is unstable angina that's just gone too long, right? So that, so in regards to unstable angina and MI, the difference is simply time. Yeah, right. that's probably a good point. And, and so the reason why, you know, because again, the pathophysiology and symptomatology, it's the same. Right, but an MI is telling you that tissue is dead, and an angina is telling you you've just got chest pain. So, at least by definition, um, but it's likely due to an ischemic event of some sort leading to the infarct. So, I think the thing I was saying about the biomarkers is different. Is without going into detail here that the troponin is released when muscle cells die. Right, so it's a byproduct of muscle metabolism, and so if you've or, got no death, uh, muscle. Yeah, sorry, it's a byproduct of muscle death, and when the muscle dies, it releases troponin, right? And so if you've got troponin levels going up, it's telling you muscle's dead. If the troponin levels aren't elevated, well, the muscle hasn't died yet, but you've still got the chest pain. It's unstable. It's unstable angina, right? Mm. Now, there's other things you can do to check all this, which is an ECG, right? Do you want to talk about that now or not yet? Uh, the only thing I'll just mention before we get into the diagnostics is just the main risk factors for ischemic heart disease. Yeah, so idea. this kind of puts it all together. Yep. Um, so the risk factors kind of come to, um, I guess you'd say, behavioural risk factors. Right. And those that are more biomedical risk factors. Yeah. So would you say behavioural or lifestyle? Yeah, Okay. Either, either or. Okay. 
But I get your point. So I like I like lifestyle because behavior makes it seem as though it's a choice when it probably is in many aspects, but also sometimes it could be a product of circumstance. Okay. Right. So the classic risk factors, and you you would say these are the mod the at least the big modifiable risk factors yep. associated with ischemic heart disease would be smoking. Yep. The diet related. Mm-hmm. So poor diet, but that's a hard thing to yeah, I was just gonna say to so what, do you what mean that by means. Poor diet? Yep. Um insufficient physical activity and alcohol consumption. Yep. They would be the big four that if you were considered to have a high risk profile, those are the ones you need to kind of consider to get into check. Yes. Now the ones that you would say biomedical, these are things that could be modifiable, but they're additional to the lifestyle. So these would be high blood pressure. Right abnormal blood lipids. Now, sometimes these are termed hypercholesteremias, yep. but I think a better term is dyslip- dyslipidemia. I think that's better because yeah. often it's about ratios, right? So that would suggest that you've got – if you just say you've got hypercholesteremia, yeah. that just means you've got high amounts of lipids in your blood. Yes. But you could have a really high good fat, which yep. is a HDL, right? And – also increased LDL, but that ratio... Terrible term to use good fat, but yes. Good, good lipid fat. I wouldn't <laughs> even say good. No? No. Protective? Probably protective. Okay. But again, it's ratio based, right? I mean, but I'm just saying the ratio to each other, but yes. I'm just saying HDL is typically termed the good lipid blood Compared lipid, right? To Opposed to the LDL, LDL yeah. which is more harmful, I guess you would say. But if you just say hyperlipidemia, that just means raised. But if you say dyslipidemia, it kind of means the HDL's low and the LDL's high. Yes. Which is a poor ratio to have. So how do you remedy that? I'll get to that. Diabetes is another one. And then finally, uh, obesity or being overweight. So they're the biomedical risk factors. Okay. So just... A couple of side clinical points. Um, probably in the last, if we're talking in the Australian context, the way that maybe primary health um, physicians like GPs would try to assess their um, patients' risk for ischemic heart disease, they would a lot of the information that they would be basing their clinical predictions on would, was from a study that was done in a town in Massachusetts, Massachusetts called Framingham, I think. And so this would be called the Framingham study, which I believe was around the 50s. And they kind of looked at individuals in this town long term to see what um, parameters within their life increase the likelihood of ischemic heart disease. And, right. and then based on these... So it was a longitudinal study. Yep. Based on these parameters, that would stratify risk for individuals developing ischemic heart disease. But that was, you know, 70 years ago. Right. And so the profile of individuals back then is different to how they are now. Oh, good point. So have they done an updated study of this? Yeah, so at least what I've come across in Australia, the Australian Heart Foundation has, has, well, is, has implemented uh, New Zealand, a recent New Zealand study that I can't remember the name of it, that has updated the, the, the risk scoring. Okay. okay. And this takes into different 
So the you can actually use this cardiovascular risk. So it's called the Australian Cardiovascular Disease Risk Calculator. Right. This would typically be done by a GP, but it brings into a, a whole host of other things. Now, the first thing they would do to kind of calculate your risk of developing ischemic heart disease, would they would look at on age. So there's kind of three categories that they would look at. So you go to cvdcheck.org.au? Yeah, that's right. right. So this would look in terms of individuals that are over the age of 45. Yep. So that would be something that a GP would want to do a score on, but also individuals who have diabetes. So this would probably be more so type 2 diabetes, but not exclusive in, exclusive to. Um, if you were to have type 2 diabetes, your age of risk may start a bit earlier, and that would be 35. Yep. But also First Nation people of Australia, that would also be a higher risk. So their age, the start of their age risk would be at 30 years of age. Okay. So these are the age groups that would be um, wanted to bring in to, to do this assessment. Yeah. Okay. And so this, uh, by the look of this assessment, um, you obviously need a couple of uh, measurements taken prior to doing this. So you need to know family history about hypercholesteremia or co- uh, chronic kidney disease. Um, you need uh, your systolic blood pressure your ratio of total cholesterol to HDL uh, and whether you're taking any cardiovascular disease modifying medicines over the past six months, history of atrial fibrillation and diabetes. And so it takes all this into consideration, don't know what the algorithm is that they use and then they calculate a risk in a way. Yeah, and that's right. And so I think where it's updated from the Framingham study is they historically would have said diabetes are risk full stop. Yeah. But here they would say, well, diabetes could be, but how well has it been regulated? Mm. And so if you have type 2 diabetes, but you're really well on top of your management, yeah. that you may not be a great deal more of a risk. So that's why they want to look at your kidney function because yep. that's indicative. If your kidney function is dropping, that's an indication that your diabetes hasn't been sure. well managed. Yeah. But also other things like HB1C, which 1AC, which is a three-month ratio of how well your blood sugars are being managed. Yeah. Cool. So it's diabetes, yes, but it's poorly managed diabetes, which is the real risk, okay. not just diabetes flat. Sure. So these are just some of the, the preventable things that an individual could look at to down, not downplay, but diminish. Reduce their risk. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay, so, so they're, they're, so they're the, risk the risk factors. factors. Yep. So what now? So what, what did you ask before I came I, in with the risk I don't factors? Know, 30 minutes ago. <laughs> um, we were going to talk about... Diagnostics. Were we? Yeah. Okay. So, no, that's... Oh, that's you right, said, I said ECG. Yeah. Okay. So, like I think you were alluding to, when we... Because ischemic heart disease is that umbrella term that encapsulates both the anginas and the infarctions. We've got two clusters of a group that is the ischemics and those that are infarction. Yeah. Okay, so by definition, infarction, we said, has there's been cell death, ischemics, there haven't been. And as you spoke about, we could take a blood test, so you could have an individual that presents to ED 
with chest pain and if you're wanting to see if they've had an infarction event, you could take blood and look for these markers that you said, troponin, yep. but also creatine kinase, yep. which would be indicative that heart muscle has died, ruptured and spilled its, spilled its contents into the blood, which you can then measure. Yeah. But the other thing you could do is an ECG. And an ECG is essentially the electrical activity of the heart. And so if there has been a a change in the oxygenation status, then the way that the the heart depolarizes and repolarizes is going to be altered, right? Yeah. What about – so before we jump into that, I'm going to do what you do to me. The symptomatology – of ischemic heart disease, right? Because now we're going, you know, somebody's presenting an ED, but usually you only present if you have symptoms, right? So we all think, like you spoke about earlier about the, the chest pain, you know, you, you watch on TV somebody, you know, sort of clutching at their chest and then collapsing. But that's probably not even the most common way it's presented necessarily. Um, it's it, not a very... Um, well, I won't say predictable, but it's not the best or most accurate method of well, that's assuming right. severity either. Because it's not uncommon for people to go to the emergency department with chest pain and they've just got gastric reflux. Correct. Right? So there could be, or, or uh, lung disease, or, you know, there could be an, a number of things, costochondritis. Like there could be a, a number of things that lead to chest pain. And that's, that's very good because I actually do this with my students. Yeah. I'll say... Here's a patient with chest pain. If you're the nurse, the triage nurse, and you're trying to figure out what the source of the chest pain is, let's not assume that it's a heart attack, but you just try to figure out what it could be. You know, a typical assessment of pain is you do the PQRST scale, right? Yep. Being P, what precipitates the pain? What brings on the pain? What palliates the pain? What takes it away? Q, what's the quality of the pain? What's the severity of the pain? What's the time profile of the pain? All these questions are important. So heart pain, if you're saying from ischemia, yeah, that's visceral pain. It's not a very well localised pain. Very true. It's very kind of diffuse, diffuse in nature yep. and it's not very well – it can radiate, it can move. That's okay? right. It can go so, to the shoulders. It can go to the back. And go to neck, neck, um, jaw. Right? So the question, a good question to ask is: This is the P of the PQRST. What were you doing? Like, what brought on the pain? Right. So and the classic—that's the classic heart pain—is right. exertion. Yeah. But it, like you said, if it's if it's reflux pain, mm. well, what brings on reflux? Well, did they just eat? Yeah. Did they get it while they're lying chili down? Con carne. Or they just had a chili meal or an Indian meal, right? Yeah. Or did the pain go, this is the palliation, did it go away when you had an antacid? Yeah. Because if it did, then it's not a heart attack. Good indication. Or I shouldn't be definitive like that, no, but, but you know what I mean? It's a good it's indication. It's likely it because be. that's taken it away. Taking an antacid with having heart attack pain, it's not going to take the pain away. Yes. And so like you said, if it's pulmonary derived, it's going to be worsened by breathing. Yes. If it's... Which is tricky because shortness of breath is also True. a symptom of ischemic heart disease. So chest pain, maybe. Shortness of breath, maybe. But you might also have fatigue, mm-hmm. right? You might also have uh, nausea. Yeah. Um, so some people do feel like they feel sick. 
dizziness, lightheadedness. Uh, and these are very these are very non-specific symptoms, aren't they? So because if you're saying presenting with chest pain or chest discomfort, yeah, you're let's we're we're working in this we're working in the context of ischemic heart disease here. The heart is not keeping up with demand here, right? Mm. So the heart's not working well because it's running out of blood itself. So its efficiency is dropping. So therefore the body's going, well, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? That's right. We'll better tell you or tell the uh, fight and flight system to speed up. Yeah. So this is where you have a sympathetic drive. drive and this is where you're starting to see the, Sweating, I guess you should anxiety. say, non-specific symptoms of it. So you would get cold clammy, uh, whitish skin, right? Yep. So they look pale, pale yep. their hands, they're a bit sweaty, they're cold. That's the sympathetic drive. Yeah, Nausea, it's a harder one. It could be part of that, but it also could be an irritation to the vagus nerve. Yeah, And so if you have a vagal irritation, that can cause the feeling of nausea and vomit and vomit. Mm, absolutely. So, so the point we're trying to get across is that the symptomatology is varied. And individual specific. And like I said, my wife working as a cardiac tech, she tells me all the time of the symptoms that people, or no symptoms at all, that people state when they've had an MI, right? She said there's people who have obviously had infarct of some degree in their myocardium. They've had no idea. Now, they probably did have some symptomatology, but maybe on the background of probably generally feeling pretty crappy on an everyday basis may not have necessarily been that bad for them. Yeah, right? I, had a, I had a close family friend who had an MI the whole day wow. and he just felt like he had just a bit of discomfort. Like, you know, how, how you have that muscle pain after a gym workout, that yeah. kind of uncomfortable pain. And he was doing um, just walks down the street right to the you know, just around the street to the park or something to try to get rid of the pain because okay. he thought that what he needed. Yeah. Wow. But little did he know that he was having an MI a big part of the day. Jeez. See, so we just wanted to flag that as well because I think that is important. So regardless, somebody's coming to ED and you're going to have the uh, physician going to go, well, look, they've got what could possibly be ischemic heart disease Maybe they've got angina. Maybe they're having a heart attack. Let's do the basic tests, the gold standard tests to figure this out. And one of those, in addition to doing bloods, like you said before, for troponin and creatine kinase, for example, would just be to chuck them on an ECG. You know, it's not invasive. It's super quick and it shows you what's happening in the heart. And from experience, we know that changes, specific changes in the ECG readout can be indicative of ischemic heart disease and specific types. So, for example, there is often something called a STEMI and a non-STEMI. And a STEMI is ST-elevated myocardial infarction. However, I think you can have STEMI for unstable angina too. I think it's more with Prim's metal. Right. Because we haven't really spoke about this. No. But essentially what that is is a vasogenic or a vasospasmodic artery. Yeah. And so that becomes very unpredictable because... It could be a multitude of why the the blood vessels yeah. going constricting, dilating, constricting, dilating. And so the big difference here is 
if you're getting a reduction in blood flow f- from the whole thickness, so from the endocardium all the way to the epicardium, called a transmural, is yep. that right? Yep. If you can get that whole strip that's running out of oxygen, that would lead to an ST elevated change. That's right. Whereas the non-STEMIs and the unstable is more to be a partial thickness yep. and they're more likely to be a depression. But you're going to explain this. But the, the big difference here between a, a STEMI mm. and a Prinz metal is the Prinz metal will reverse, right? whereas the STEMI is now a full thickness infarct or and necrosis. Do you think Prinz metal would also have the elevated biomarkers? No, because it's not go. death. There you go. All right, so... So you could have an ST elevation and not elevated biomarkers. It could be an indication it's just an, another unstable angina. Right? Correct. And that's where it's and that's where I think you got your stat where if you clustered all your anginas together, so that would be the stable, prince metal, unstable. Yeah. A big part of the cluster would be a non atherosclerotic yeah. basis, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, look the this could be a whole topic and it has been a whole video on the YouTube page. I will provide a link in the description to this video which describes exactly, because I'm drawing out on the whiteboard, what happens in ST-elevated and non-ST-elevated myocardial infarction, so a STEMI and a non-STEMI. But to basically summarise what's happening in these situations is if you understand an ECG, and if you don't understand an ECG, Google what a lead to or ECG trace looks like, and you've got various uh, bumps, dips, associated with it you've got what's called the p wave the q wave the r wave the s wave and the t wave generally it's they're representative of the electrical conduction within the heart and throughout the myocardium the heart muscle and simply put it's about whether depolarization happens in the direction of the lead or away from the lead that you're looking at or repolarization repolarization happens in the direction of the lead or away from the lead that you're looking at Generally speaking, depolarization, which is ba- which is basically the movement, and this is a gross oversimplification, but it just makes sense, the movement of positive ions in the direction of the lead. Sorry, depolarization is simply the, the movement of positive ions. Into, right? the, ce- into the cell, Into right? the cell. But generally because one muscle cell is connected to the next, is connected to the next, is connected to the next, this wave of depolarization or wave of positive ion influx spreads through the muscle, right? And if this spread of positive ions moves in the direction of the lead, you get a bump up on the ECG. If it moves away from the lead, it dips down on the ECG. And that's why, you know, the major reasons why you see peaks and troughs on the ECG readout. So if you have uh, death of the myocardium, so these cells are dying, and they're dying in, let's say, the left ventricular wall, right at the apex, but it's not going all the way through. It's just going halfway through, right? So remember we said that the tissue will die from the endocardium out towards the epicardium, the outside of the heart muscle, simply because of the way that the uh, coronary arteries are situated. You've got these cells dying, these myocardia cells, and we know as you know, biochemists that inside of a cell, you've got heaps of potassium and outside of the cell, you've got heaps of sodium. Cells are bags of potassium. That's, that's yeah, all they are. Floating in a sea of salt, which is sodium and chloride. Now, what, <laughs> what we 
have in this situation is in order to depolarize a muscle cell, it needs to begin as being negative inside the muscle cell. And the way this happens is because you're probably going, wait, we've got positive sodium outside, but we've also got positive potassium inside. But it's about the movement of these ions and which side is more positive or more negative compared to the other side. Generally speaking, all these ions want to move down their own concentration gradient. So if sodium is in high concentration outside the cell, it wants to get into the cell. If potassium is in high concentration in the cell, it wants to get out of the cell. Now there's no doorways or channels for sodium to get in at the moment at rest. So sodium is stuck outside. But potassium, there is a channel and it's cracked open a little bit. So potassium tends to leak out of the myocardium, which means these positive potassium go outside, making it slightly more negative inside the muscle cell compared to outside. This is what we call the resting membrane potential, where it's negative inside compared to outside, right? So it's just a comparison. And the negativity compared to the outside is about negative 90 millivolts. That's the resting membrane potential. This is what we call the isoelectric point. When nothing's happening in the myocardium, it is at this baseline, right? But now think of this. So is that on an ECG, the baseline is the flat point? That's right. That's the isoelectric point. So in a typical cardiac cycle, there are actually points where there's a flat line happening. Yes. And so isoelectric simply means there's no change in conductivity, right? Now, it doesn't mean that it is of zero charge. It's just no change in conductivity. Okay. Right? So... If you have myocardium cells dying, right, halfway through the ventricular wall, the cells are dying, which means no ATP is being made by the mitochondria. Now, the thing is that- is it, So is it dying or is it just running out of oxygen? Well, it, it, it's, it's running out of oxygen to the point- There's not enough ATP. There's not enough ATP being okay. made. And here's the thing. These muscle cells don't just have these leaky potassium channels they've also got other potassium channels present in their walls that atp keeps shut and so when we're mate when we've got heaps of oxygen so when we've got a good blood supply and heaps of oxygen we're making heaps of atp and these potassium channels are closed so the potassium remains inside and you only get that leaking out of the potassium and you have the normal resting membrane potential of negative 90 millivolts But if the cells aren't getting enough oxygen due due to a blockage of the coronaries, no ATP, there's no ATP to keep the channel shut. So these potassium channels are open and potassium leaks out in a higher abundance than the leaky channel. So what this means is that you've now got an accumulation of potassium outside of these muscle cells. Now for the dead muscle cells, doesn't matter. But now for the surrounding living muscle cells there is a concentration gradient where the potassium that generally would want to leak outside because it's going down its gradient Can't. doesn't want to. So in a way, it becomes hyperkalemic. But yes, hyperkalemia occurs. But my, minus the emic because that's blood, but you know what I mean. Yes. High potassium in that area. Yeah, you get hyperkalemia in that area, right? So you get high potassium sitting outside the cells and the healthy cells, the ones that are remaining, the potassium doesn't want to leak outside. Because the gradient's lost. That's right. So now the the resting membrane potential isn't negative 90. It's going to be more positive. So it might be like negative 50, for example. But what that means now 
is that it's easier to depolarize and that the isoelectric point at baseline is higher. Okay. So that now when you get an EC, uh, because if you think about this, right, the depolarization, because it's these uh, dead cells are leaking potassium out, right? It's causing an early depolarization event. But because there's a, a gap in the muscle wall that's living, the depolarization event can still happen in the direction of the lead, right? Okay. So this lead picks up a, an early depolarization event and interprets it as a higher isoelectric point. So the isoelectric point begins higher, which now means when you get this depolarization of the rest of the ventricle, the QRS complex, that's higher up, right? right. But then you get the... T wave from the from the end of the QRS complex, the S to the T, that represents repolarization, so resetting of the heart. This happens normally, which means it then okay. drops back down to its normal resting point. Right. And so what it looks like on an ECG is that you have this ST depression. And this happens when you have death of the muscle tissue that doesn't go the full width of the muscle wall. Okay. And right? that would tip that would typically be the end STEMI, yeah, but you can also have this in the unstable. Exactly right. So the unstable and the non-STEMI could look similar in an ECG. Yes, and and it's called ST depression, but in actual fact, it's QRS elevation. PQRS elevation. That's right. It's everything else elevation, okay. right? But when we look at um, a transmural death. So an infarct that's killed the muscle tissue that goes the full width of that uh, myocardium. What now happens is the same thing. Potassium leaks out and the early depolarization event cannot happen in the direction of the lead. It happens away from the lead because that's the only other direction for it to go, right? We're talking lead two here, which means that now if it's going away from the lead, depolarization is happening away from the lead. So you get a drop down. So the baseline isoelectric point, isoelectric point begins lower. So now what you ah, get... So it reverses it. Exactly. So now the ST segment looks elevated, but it's really everything else has been... Depression. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So the ST elevation, so the STEMI is not a true STEMI. It's actually an everything else depression, but it looks like ST elevation. Great. Does that make sense? It does. All right. So it has to do in, in a big part with potassium, but it also has to do with a big part with what degree of the cell wall is, has died off. Well, not only died off, but just not enough ATP. Yeah, just enough uh, reduction in oxygen and blood supply to cause because the real, lack of the real ATP. important point here is if you were just to do, let's just say a person had chest pain and you were just to do an ECG, you could get ST elevation, but we have to use this term because this is what it's used, right? Yeah, yeah. We could get ST elevation with a STEMI, yeah. but also the PRIMS metal angina. Yeah but we would get an ST depression with the unstable angina and the, um, the non-STEMI. Yes, that's right. That's right. Hence why the biomarkers are also an important thing to do concurrently. Now, with the, uh, the stable anginas, technically if you had a person at rest because it's predictable, there's enough myocardial oxygen, they would probably have normal ECG. Yeah, but if you maybe put them, in arrhythmia. But if you put them on a, a treadmill and you've stressed them, yep. then they're likely to go into a ST depression, yes. like a, an unstable or an NSTEMI. Yep. 
But the point which is important here, you do have two groups now in ECG changes. Yes. You have the ST, or the, we'll just call it the just call STEMIs. Just call it yeah. We'll call it the STEMIs and the Prims Metal in one group. Yep. And then we'll have the Unstables and the Non-STEMIs in another group. Yep. And so now the final test that will separate them all is the serum markers. Yes. And so once you take the the blood and you look for troponins, you now can, in those that have SD elevations, you can now separate the STEMIs from the Prims metal yeah. because Prims metal won't have any troponin changes because there's no infarction. And then you can go across to the non-STEMIs or the non-SD elevated changes and you would only see troponin changes in the non-STEMIs. Yeah, so you're basically saying that the troponins tell you whether it's ischemia or infarct. Correct. Right. So, And that's a big group separation. It is, yeah. Now, would they – I don't know if they – do they also give aspirin? Yeah, so th- we're getting to management. But just before we do that yep. – I know you're rolling your eyes. Um, with all that's those right. things that you mentioned – So a two-hour podcast. <laughs> potassium is leaking out. Yep. Okay, we've got changes in ATP. Yes. So that means we've got more ADP and AMP, which mm-hmm. has been degraded to adenosine. Yep. We've also got the heart trying to make, make ATP without oxygen, That's which right. is lactate. That's right. Which it's and fine with using. It's not it, – That's the right. The heart likes lactate. And we've now got the area not only high in potassium but high in acid yep. or hydrogen ions. All these things, so adenosine, hydrogen, potassium um, – said something else i can't remember are all irritating the nerves yeah so the nerves but they're also sorry to interrupt they're also trying to vasodilate the coronaries as well so it's sort of a homeostatic response it's trying to help fix itself but still not enough but if you've got a full clot that's now blocked plugged in the blood yeah, vessel it's not going to do anything nothing's going to do anything that's right. so you're saying that these are now irritants to the vas- uh, sorry to the nervous supply correct and so what does that mean now that the nerves that are so the, the sensory nerves that are supplying the visceral sensory nerves that are supplying the heart are now being irritated right to cause a noxious stimulus which now exits the heart now because the heart and then going into the spinal cord because the heart is a visceral organ mm-hmm. it's not it's not well localized like somatic muscle. Yeah, it's visceral muscle, just like all your gut or your gallbladder or your kidney. It gets thrown into the spinal cord at multiple levels. Now the heart gets thrown in at T one to T four. Yeah, so it's over a diffuse part of the spinal cord. It's not well localized. Do other parts of the body enter at T one to T four as well, Matt? So the bottom part of your brachial plexus coming at that point so from the arms from the arms and that's why it refers sometimes to the the lower part dermatone of the left arm right but it can also go into your high thorax so it can be chest neck jaw and that's why it kind of confuses i guess this is in some way part of the gate theory that it kind of confuses with other somatic areas yes and the brain or the or the central system get confused where this stimulus is coming from yeah so this is the reason for why some individuals will get uh, referredness to yeah. their pain. Uh, and that is important. I mean, it's important anatomically and physiologically and clinically as part of that symptomatology. Uh, so now it's treatment? Treatment. Treatment right. management. Okay. So straight up, do they give aspirin still? I think from the last time I checked, 
the one intervention that has the greatest impact on mortality yep. is, is aspirin. Why? Well, aspirin, if it goes back to if we're going to generalise, the most likely reason for the, if we're talking acute coronary syndrome now, so this is going to be the unstable to the MIs, the yep. most common reason for it is a superimposed thrombus. Now, like you what said, what's that? What's that referring? So that that goes to again a stable plaque, yep. which the individual has now gone through a an event that has bumped up their blood pressure. So they've got a stable plaque they didn't know of. Let's say they've just overexerted themselves, so they've carried furniture for their child because they're moving house. Yep. Carried a bed up the stairs. So this is the greatest exertion they've done for some time, and it's yep. a big exertion. Sure. All of a sudden, they've got a huge spike in blood pressure. The blood, blood pressure in their coronaries is high. There's a, a huge amount of force that's flying over the top of that hill, which is the plaque in your blood vessel in the coronary, and it's ripped off the top of the hill. Okay. Okay, so it's like a low-flying plane that's... The cap's off. That's took the cap off the, the top of the, the fibrous cap off the top of the atherosclerotic plaque. Yep. So it's ripped the top off. Now, as far as the things in your blood that try to stop blood vessels um, having holes in it, they think, oh, there's a hole in the blood vessel here. We better patch it up, mm. which is great when you have cuts and abrasions and all those kind of things, but not when it's in a blood vessel. Sure. Yeah. So all of a sudden these platelets come along and go, hey, there's a hole in the blood vessel. Let's hang out here and start hole in hands. And this is called platelet aggreg- aggregation. Right. So all of a sudden platelets will start to join and get bigger and get bigger get bigger, and then all of a sudden most of the blood vessel is now occluded. So what's that got to do with aspirin? So aspirin is a drug that stops platelet aggregation. Hold hand in. There you go. So it reduces the risk of clot and further embolism. That's right. So it prevents the clot progressing. Okay. Okay. But you can also bring in other anticoagulants here. So this is also why heparin's good. It stops the stabilization of the clot so it makes the clot less stable and more likely to be broken down sure i'm not really sure the evidence in giving throt uh, the clot busters here so yeah. breaking the clot up yeah thrombolytics thrombolytics i don't know how well that's utilizing clinical practice they may do it in more kind of remote settings when they can't get a a um the ability to get in there and take the clot out sure but i don't really know how well that is, okay. is done in would they also give nitroglycerin? So that would be, yep, that would be a good one to try to get the blood vessels open. Yep. So nitroglycerin is a good one. You, depending on the, how the patient is, if they have a low oxygen um, saturation, so I think under 90, they would give oxygen. But I think oxygen is not routinely given anymore because okay. there is concern that if the person was to survive from the MI, yeah they can get a reperfusion injury with too much oxygen, which becomes like a free radical right, okay. damage to the surviving tissue. Okay. So I That's think oxygen's only given when they're desat in. Gotcha. Now, so not just because they used to just chuck yeah, just oxygen on every, every time they come in. Yeah. Okay. Now the other thing you, they can do is they can take the stress away from I also the thought that oxygen can lead to further vasoconstriction in certain vessels too. Well, that could be in in most cases, uh, hypoxia does result in 
dilation. Vasodilation. Yeah, so that's maybe what I was thinking. Right. Maybe giving the oxygen might also further exacerbate yeah. the constrictive effect because it, it thinks everything's okay, but now, maybe not. Because they're in pain and because they're highly anxious, yep. they also give sometimes give morphine yep. to kind of uh, quiet them down a bit. Not quiet them down, but just take the anxiety away, which sure. takes the pressure off the heart. Talking about taking the pressure off the heart, they can give beta blockers, which makes the heart kind of work less hard, yep. therefore lead, need less myocardial oxygen. Yep. I think that's – and then the statins, which – I don't know how, obviously, in the short term, how useful that will be. Yeah. I have heard that it can stabilise the plaque, but I don't know if that would be really that useful in the acute setting. Yeah. Because you can sort of give those uh, blood volume alterating, uh, alterating, uh, altering meds as well as a secondary sort of um, intervention or prevention, right, to, to reduce further endothelial damage. Trying to reduce hypertension, basically, right? Yeah. So you can sort of, you know, things like ACE mm. um, inhibitors. inhibitors. Um, uh, but, yeah, like I think angina pharmacotherapy would include probably beta blockers. What about calcium-based meds? Calcium, like, uh, calcium channel antagonists, I think, yeah. are the one of the mainstays for, like the, prim, for the prims metal. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because the, you have the spasms in the artery wall, which would be the main concern. All right. Um, okay, so they're the various meds, and obviously there's other interventions like surgical, and we spoke about. Oh yeah, so the surgical. Stenting, right? That's great. So if then the the treatment management would be you would go to the cath lab, yeah, and that would then try to unblock the blockage, right? And so that's where you'd do what I spoke about at the start with my dad. Go up there, look for where the blockage is. You could put a balloon in there to try and. Widen the wall. Just like a party balloon, like one that you could fold into a sausage dog or... Not quite, but okay. along those lines. All right. Just small. So you bl- blow it up in the... Like a water balloon. In the... There we go. Blow up the water balloon. <laughs> Actually, I think they do use water. I think they inject water okay, and it pushes it out. Anyway, that... But, o- it's, but it's not a water balloon. It pushes the wall open and hopefully gets the, the occlusion out of the way. Yep. They could use a stent and then if that doesn't work, then they do the bypass, which we already spoke to. Yeah. Yeah. So is that cabbage? Cabbage. What's cabbage? Oh, I can never remember. Coronary artery bypass graft. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's what you were talking about before. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so... If what, you were to survive? Yeah, so if somebody, let's just say, because obviously at the very end... You know, worst case scenario of ischemic heart disease, um, at least in the acute phase, is an MI, right? So somebody has a heart attack, but it doesn't just, and if somebody survives a heart attack, it doesn't just finish there necessarily, right? So there could be, you know, these various complications of experiencing the MI, the heart attack. Um, And so there's a number of them. Uh, and I know that you said to me that <laughs> you had done a, a, as good a job as you possibly could to create a mnemonic because you love creating mnemonics to help people because you're always student focused, right? That's right. Memori- thinking- memory tools, I call them. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, that's what I call you as well. <laughs> so you're just here to help the students. And so Matt, tell me, what have you worked hard on? What mnemonic have you worked really hard on to develop for the students today? Okay, so the, this mnemonic um, underpins all the possible complications that could come after an MI. Right, all of them. 
Oh, okay, I'm not going to yeah, be that. No, I'm, okay. I apologize for doing that, but most. Most. All right. The most common. Okay, so uh, what's I tried the to come up with, actually, I threw it through ChatGPT to begin with, and the best I could get initially was two words. Yeah. But then I've narrowed it down to one word. Great. Now, That's the, even <laughs> the one word is. Yes. Sharted. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait a minute. Sorry? Sharted. 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 Are you familiar with that term? Well, I am. Not only familiar with the term, Matthew, but I'm familiar with the action. Okay. Sharted, my friend, is a verb. Okay, so yes. doing, a doing word. Yes, it's a doing word. Um, it's past tense, so the shart has occurred. And uh, I would say that in the unfortunate circumstance in which you want to pass bodily gas, which is a normal physiological process, might I add. Yep. But sometimes you may have gone to Taco Bell or maybe not to disparage particular uh, fast food organisations, um, you may have eaten maybe something that disagreed with your tummy a little bit earlier. Loose stool. Well, you, uh, which was my nickname in, in high school. Um, <laughs> and so what happens is you think you need to fart but you actually poop. Okay. Now, it's not called a part. It's called a shart. <laughs> so it's another word for poop. Um, it's a bit of a wet fart. Okay. <laughs> so in saying that, what does it stand for? Does it stand for? Okay. What does each letter stand for? Now, remember, an MI is resulted in the death of myocardium. Yes. Okay, so this is where it's going to... the. the Potentially, I mean, one of them isn't a recovery, yep. but all the rest is the body trying to recover from the MI. Okay. So, sharted, S, I'll have, to have a look on the board because I won't be able to spell it properly. I'll read it out for you. So, S is shock. Shock. So, that would be cardiogenic shock. So, that would be basically means you've lost probably significant amount of myocardium and now you have a degree of pump dysfunction, a pump failure. So, the heart just can't pump enough blood out yeah. to keep up, keep up with the demands of the body. So you would get... Lack of perfusion is shock, right? That's right. So you'd get cardiogenic shock, opposed so, to the other forms of shock, but this is just heart-driven shock. Yeah, so cardiogenic means... Um, From the heart. Yeah, the cause is the heart. Genic yeah. is, you know, genesis, the, the cause of. So cardiogenic, cardiogenic shock. So shock is the S of shattered. H would be heart failure. Heart failure, that's right. Yeah. right which I think is self-explanatory and no longer works as a pump. Correct. Right? Uh, the A is aneurysm. Yeah, so that then means what happens is as the wall, the walls are now died, so the myocardium's died, doesn't matter really where in the body, if you have any kind of death of tissue, yep. the body tries to come in, clean it up, infuse it with white blood cells, eat all the dead stuff up and lay down a new basis of tissue yep. to try to repair it. Now, that's fine in some locations where you can remake the tissue to how it should have been. Yep. So if this was in your skin and you had an injury, you cleaned it up or you, your immune system cleaned it up, laid down new fibres and then the epithelium grows over it and you've got a nice healed wound. Sure. You can't even notice it where it was. But in your heart, the big problem is the myocardium doesn't really recover. So it becomes more of a scar tissue than new muscle. So where's the aneurysm part? So it, the, what's happened is it hasn't repaired well enough 
and the side wall has bulged out and formed right. an aneurysm, which is just like a weakening pouch. Gotcha. And so that's kind of bulged out the side of the ventricle, let's say. Which probably can then lead to the R in shattered, which is rupture. Rupture, that's right. So you can have a rupturing of the ventricular wall or the interventricular septum or even the papillary muscle. So you can have various aspects of the heart tissue rupturing. Yeah. Um, then the T is a tamponade. Tamponade. So that basically goes to the basis of you've had injury, you've now got inflammation. We know that one side of inflammation is edema or swelling. Now, in this case, because it's going to be on the outer part of the heart, that inflammation can go off into the pericardium right. and cause fluid accumulation. And then that starts to push against the heart itself. So when it's trying to beat, it's having this tamponade, yeah. which is kind of resistant resistant against it. Yeah. And that can lead to obviously issues with heart working as a pump, but also a significant amount of pain. Yes. And just the ability of the heart to feel because it's been restricted. So it's not filling in diastole, therefore you can't get as much blood out. And the E uh, is embolism. No, we did embolism. No, no embolism. Embolism. So because you're getting maybe a poor efficiency of filling and beating, you can get stagnation within the ventricle and then that can lead to the blood clotting. clotting yeah. Similar to what you sometimes see in the atria with AF, yep. you can get stagnation and then blood clot formation and then you can get embolism. Gotcha. So, a thrombus versus an embolism. And D. Wait, a thrombus versus an embolism. This is what I was saying earlier. Isn't an embolism begins in the heart? Embolism is just basically means something's breaking off from something else. Oh. So, you could have a clot, a thrombus in your veins and your lower leg, but as soon as it breaks off from the original point and it's moving, it's now an embolus. Okay, cool. But you could also have an embolus which is... Fat, right? So from a broken bone or an air embolus. What's the difference between that and a thrombus? Thrombus is fixed. It's it's gotcha. staying where it formed. Cool. Uh, and then D is dysrhythmia. Which do we call it dysrhythmias or do we say arrhythmias now? Well, didn't you? I'm sure you did a video on that. Yeah, it was years ago. And you remember. said arrhythmia means technically no rhythm. Yes, that's true. Whereas dysrhythmia is a disordered. Agreed. So I think dys is. The better term. I agree too. So it's disordered it, rhythm. But really arrhythmia is going to be the one you'll see more frequently in te- textbooks. Yeah, I agree. And so that, that could be, you know, a, a range of things, you know, heart block, atrial, yeah. It really depends on where it happens. Yeah. So, And the other rupture you could put there would be the rupture of papillary muscles. So if you have papillary that, muscles that die. I said that in Oh, did you? Yeah. And therefore the strings that are holding on the, onto the… Uh, tendon, no, heart strings. Release and you get mitral valve regurgitation. regurgitation. There is another way that you can sort of classify all these. So another D is death. Okay. Well, that's a pretty bad complication. Um, so you can classify it differently. I like yours better. Sharded is far easier to remember. But you can have the you can have arrhythmic, ischemic, mechanical, inflammatory, and systemic complications. So the arrhythmic are the conduction. So heart block, atrial or ventricular arrhythmias. You can have ischemic, which can be a reinfarct. So you can actually have a reinfarct or you can have an extension of the existing infarct. And I think reinfarcts are fairly common. And one of the way they know that is between the time profiles of the two blood markers. Mm. So creatine kinase versus troponins. I think creatine kinase has a oh, shorter gotcha. half-life. Yep. And it so it will disappear. I think it's forty-eight hours. It almost goes back to baseline. Yeah. Whereas the other one takes a lot longer. 
I might have that wrong. But essentially, if you have another peak of the creatine kinase, that will tell you you just had another infarct. Yes. Whereas the troponins are still coming down, so you don't necessarily know going off of troponins. Well, exactly right. And I think the it's important to understand that this is usually going to happen within a couple of days of having the original infarct. Um, then you've got, uh, in addition to that, uh, mechanical. So these are the mechanical complications, mitral valve, caudal ruptures, septal, ventricular, tamponade, aneurysms, right? Inflammatory, pericarditis. Yeah, um, which is tamponade. Which is part of that tamponade. Yeah. Well, tamponade is the result of the pericarditis, yep. And then you can have systemic. So that's the cardiogenic shock. That's the heart failure. That's the lower extremity embolism, um, whatever it may be, right? And interestingly, and this goes back to maybe what – Ben sent at the start with some of his research that he sent us is historically the way that a surviving a heart attack would have been was six weeks to eight weeks in bed. Wow. Just stay in bed. Yeah. And in a a way, without having all the modern modern medicine, it makes sense because all these complications just by staying in bed and not making your heart work hard could reduce the risk of these worsening. Yes. Because if you're not stressing your heart out after the infarct, you're less likely to get maybe some of the downstream effects like aneurysms, ruptures, mm. So it makes sense. Sit it down, does. don't do anything. But we now know that your body is dynamic and responds to stressors, uh, those stresses that we can overcome. You don't. The thing is you don't want to overly stress the heart after MI, but you want it to do its job as a pump as well. So... Have we hit the end, Matt? Yeah, and so the only other thing that I will put here, but that really goes back to the risk factors. Let me just pull that slide up because I've got the um, the CVD risk calculator. Is that the management? Well, technically, how you would want to manage this whole umbrella term yes. would be preventative. Yes. You don't want it to begin with. Yes. So right. you really want to do your best, and this is the point of this to cardiovascular risk. To, yeah, that's right. <laughs> to choose your parents wisely. That's right. You really want to prevent all this happening. Yep. And so when we spoke about all the risks, you want to minimise those as best you can. Yep. But if you were to survive an ischemic event, even if it's you know the anginas or the MIs, mm-hmm. you would, and the clinicians would be working with the patient to reduce all those risks and lifestyle management to try to get the likelihood of another event happening to be very low. Yeah, So that would be blood pressure, lipids, stop your smoking, better nutrition, get moving. Pick a better dad. Healthy weight. Don't drink alcohol. Yeah. Beautiful. Good job. So this is, as as we said at the start, this is – the most common cause of death yeah. in the Western world. So it's, it's it. a disease that is very common Yep, and you'll have a lot of patients. But predominantly preventable. Yes. Super important. Predominantly preventable. Now, I know it's two hours and 12 minutes into the podcast. You've However... S- you got I, some emails. Yeah, I just want to read... Whoop, I just went nearly smashed my iPad then. I just want to read a couple of emails out uh, because we love those that contact us. And I especially love those that um, say how great I am. Just you. Well, who wants to hear anything about you? So here we go. This is from Roman. 
Roman Roman says, hey, fellas, firstly, love your work. Thank you, Roman. Secondly, I have a suggestion for a course or content. So Roman is saying that uh, in Australia, at least, we've got the GAMSAT, which is the medical entrance exam to get into medicine at university. And he's Postgraduate medicine. Postgrad medicine. Very good. So you've already done a bachelor's of something else. Good point. Um, So he's basically said that there's one section of that that scares a lot of students. And he thinks that... um, we are more than capable of putting together content for that particular section, which is section three. Is that the science section? This is science, bio, organic chemistry, physics, maths. You can do the physics side of it, Matt. Um, and he said that there are various <laughs> prep preparation companies that just charge a ridiculous amount of money. And he thinks that we could do a better job for cheaper. And you know what? I agree. And so Matt and I will sit down and have a chat. And uh, maybe this is something that we move to in the future, maybe helping students prepare for the GAMSAT, at least the science aspect of the GAMSAT. Um, Roman is a second year nursing undergraduate student and an aspiring future med student. Roman, please keep in touch and let us know how you tr- get yeah, all the best for this on studies. your journey. Here is one from uh, Brayden. So Brayden, uh, thank you so much for your email. Brayden says, Look, I don't need anything. I just wanted to let you guys know that I just discovered your podcast and you're both freaking hilarious. Thank you, Brayden. I know that he means one of us is hilarious and it's me. uh, And I truly appreciate that. I know that you didn't want to disparage Matt. Hurt my feelings. Yes, because obviously I'm the bully in the podcast here. And so Matt, even though we are the closest of friends, we high five all the time. Sorry? Colleagues. Oh, so there is a distinction that you'd like to make. Of course, of course. Not just acquaintances. Oh, look. So we're beyond being acquaintances. We're colleagues at least. We're colleagues. Friends? No, don't stretch it. Best friends. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. All right. Uh, Thank you, Brayden. Uh, We've got another email here from uh, Kevin. Kevin says, for some topics to be covered, would you please come up with more biochemistry lectures like nucleotides and nucleosides? And Didn't you do these in the short form? I did, but they probably need redoing. No, the, the short form was in like the our A to Zs. Oh, uh, well, we spoke about, we haven't got to N yet, but we have spoken about adenosine. Yes. Uh, and uh, adenine and the difference in regards to whether it's a nucleotide or a nucleoside. Okay. So in saying that, please listen to our A to Z podcasts. Uh, We will get to that. Two per week. Nucleotides and nucleosides. We release two per week. I forgot to upload Monday's one, uh, but that's – I was busy. But that doesn't – it's not an excuse, Mike. Uh, All right. Last one by Sally. Hi, Sally. Sally says, uh, in the topic of breathing and ventilation, I've just watched your amazing video, brackets, Dr. Mike, because I'm sure it's my video. Um, She hasn't actually explicitly stated that, but I've just watched your amazing video on the mechanics of normal breathing and wondered how normal breathing is different with positive pressure ventilation. Is it sort of the opposite with pressures? Any uh, insight here, Matt? So positive airway pressure would be used when you're trying to improve inflation of the lung. Mm-hmm. Um, how that would impact. Uh, so if you were to have situations, actually I got asked this the other day in class and they were talking about high flow ventilation. Yeah. Where you don't necessarily want to add oxygenation levels, but you just want to help the 
the ventilation of lung tissue where there may be poorly ventilated regions yep. or collapse. Um, how that would impact breathing mechanics. Yeah, so the way I think about it is that ventilation is obviously simply just getting air into and out of the lungs. Respiration is gas exchange across the membranes and gas exchange across the membranes only occur when there is a partial pressure gradient. So the oxygen is higher of the gas. So when the oxygen is higher on one side of the membrane compared to the other, same with carbon dioxide, one side to the other. So if you've got a positive pressure gradient that's that that you're introducing in you're not just introducing more into the lung itself but you're probably facilitating an increase in gas exchange at the respiratory tissue if you're just trying to facilitate ventilation because it's probably maybe there's an issue with the respiratory muscles or maybe there's an issue with the lung tissue itself but there's not a problem with gas exchange occurring all you need to do is facilitate ventilation and so that's when you'd probably u- utilize one well that's where you they would use say CPAP yeah which would be a continuous positive pressure yeah and that could be in obstructive cases where people's airways are closing in during sleep yeah but then by level where they're trying to regulate that in other situations, in and out, with a positive peep or a peep, where they're kind of holding the lung open at the the end of expiration. I can't remember now. Yeah. But that would be um, how that would impact normal respiration mechanics. I don't exactly know. Yeah, look, I don't, I, I don't think it would alter it in any particular way apart from facilitating it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, I think it's highly utilized within, you know, the acute management situations like ICU where you really wanted to have that higher peep yes. to keep the airways more inflated. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that was the last email for today. We have more emails coming through and we will read them. Um, and again, thank you, Ben, for your research excellence. Yeah, Ben. Thank you, mate. I'm, we very much appreciate it. Um, if you would like to contact us, send us an email, gubiosciences at gmail.com, uh, or you can go to our website, which is drmattdrmike.com.au, uh, and you can send us an email from the website. But you can also contact us on social media at Dr. Mike Todorovich at D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. Go to our YouTube channel, hit subscribe, give us a five-star rating on the podcasts. Um, you know, tell your teachers that you listen and watch Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike and send all of your positive feedback across. If there's something that you think you don't like the way we do, for example, you don't like the way that I... Matt talks. Matt talks or the the fact that I uh, rib on him all the time, um, well, let us know. (laughs) I, I probably won't change that because part of... That's just our relationship. That's right. Matt, does it bother you? That you're disparaging of me? That I... Give you a hard time sometimes. Look, I know you don't mean it. You know I love you. Well, that's subjective. We're best friends, remember? (laughs) Best friends forced to to do battle. What's that off? Is that Thundercats? No. No, it's off uh, Jim Carrey and Cable Guy. Yeah, but he got that from something else. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Hey, if you know the answer to that and you decide to stay two hours and 20 minutes into a podcast, let me know. And we love you. That's right. Thank you, dear listener. Your commitment. Cheers. Bye. Look after your heart. Please do.